0: This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep, Bam going back, looking up, he will watch it fly! And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back! Goal! for Cody
1: Bellinger hits one out. He also, he's your home run under-
0: Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe, from spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's A's Cast Live.
2: Here's Chris Townsend.
1: The voice of your Oakland Athletics, the voice of summer, Ken Korak is with us. Ken, are we at the stadium ready to go?
3: It's an honor to be with you on your show today, I have to tell you that. Well, how are you? I'm well, and I'm looking out at the beautiful green grass at the Coliseum, and watching a TV monitor while the A's are out there getting ready to play the Rays in St. Petersburg.
1: So the decision has been made. Adam Colleric go back goes back to the alternate site. Actually, he's with the taxi squad there in Tampa. Mike Fires is back, but it looks like Mike Fires is going to be coming out of the bullpen. I just gave the stats on what he's done as a starter. I mean, all he does is win, especially at home. How do you feel about him going to the bullpen?
3: Well, I think you look at what the A's have done so far, and it's, it's a matter of maybe not messing with a good thing. And that Cole Urban has pitched really well, and, and I don't know that there was a great answer to the question, Chris, as to what to do here. Uh, maybe it's not ideal to have Mike in the pen and lose a lefty reliever, but I think on the other hand, Chris it's a real endorsement of what Cole Irvin has done so after all they've won 13 games in a row they've been one of the best teams in baseball so uh, I don't think you can blame them for uh, thinking let's keep it the way things have been going so far
1: yeah and I think the one guy that we talked about yesterday in the post game show that at some point we need to start seeing him keep the ball in the yard is is jesus lazardo i know he's got a great talent but when when your era is over five that's not good
3: no it's not you look at his last two starts though chris and in the last, it, those two ball games against the twins and the orioles he's gone 12 innings he's allowed only three earned runs so it's not like he's been you know really a liability at least here recently so but i think you're right and and we talked about it on the post show yesterday and that is that for him to take his game Uh, Chris to the next level. He's got to do a better job of keeping the ball in the ballpark.
1: So the A's, they've outscored teams 81 to 36 during that stretch. I mean, Ken, to go, you know, you looked at the standings, they look buried at the bottom, and to look at it today, uh, they're in first place. I mean, what an incredible run by these
3: guys. They went from April 8th until April 25th without losing a game. That doesn't happen every day, right, pal? You've been no. around you've covered the game for a long time. Uh, one of the things that does concern me a little bit is that in every game in the Orioles series, they stopped hitting around the fifth inning. So they weren't able to add on in the first two games, which they won. And, of course, they were They were shut down by John Means and their bullpen. Orioles' bullpen was really good. So I'd like to see uh, the offense maybe jump back and, and see if they can um, kind of regain the form that we saw – on the homestand, although I think it's going to be a tough series for them because the Rays have some pretty good pitching.
1: Oh yeah, there's no doubt. Rays are tough. I mean, they're not playing the best of baseball as they uh, Toronto took two or three for them, and they were shut out. But I think when they see the A's, they understand they're playing one of the best teams in the American League. And and I got a feeling we're gonna we're gonna see some really good competition. You know, because it's isn't it refreshing to see other teams? I mean, we haven't seen the Rays since the wild card game of 2019.
3: And Yandy Diaz leading off against Sean Manaya. He's not leading off today. He's batting second. But, yeah, even though the A's lost that game, there are great memories from seeing the Coliseum with 53,000 fans there, Chris. But uh, you're right. It is different because we were in the West all of last year in the two Western divisions. So this is going to be a great series because I think it's a measuring stick for the A's, although it's early in the year because uh, the Rays, even though their numbers are kind of pedestrian, uh, 11 and 11, uh, this is a very good team that uh, came within a couple of games of winning the World Series last year. And something too, Chris, I wanted to mention. I think baseball has been great in April. I can't remember a better April, and my memory isn't great. But you think about all the amazing things that have happened on the field, like the AS-13 game winning streak, the two no-hitters, and three, if you count, Bumgarner. Yesterday, some of the incredible comeback stories we've seen around the game, Chris. Uh, The Padres and the Dodgers playing like every game is the seventh game of the World Series. So uh, we've really seen baseball get off um, on a really high note in this first month of the season this year.
1: You know, speaking of and Baumgartner, I I saw his very brief uh, uh, after the game interview with the with the broadcasters of the Arizona Diamondbacks. And he basically said, hey, listen, you know, there's been so many no hitters. That have been broken up in the eighth or ninth inning, so you can't count this as a no hitter. But if you're going to tell me seven innings is an official game, and I don't give up a hit, how are you tell me that's not a no hitter?
3: Speaking like a former collegiate pitcher, um, yeah, I kind of I've thought about that too. It, it wouldn't bother me if they counted it as a no hitter because I think you could still note that. It was seven innings, but if if these are the rules, right? He did whatever he did, what he was supposed to do uh, within the rules that we're playing with, Uh, and he gets a complete game. He also gets a shutout, right? If you throw a one hitter, you get a one hitter. So uh, it wouldn't bother me, Chris, and and maybe baseball will make that change. And there's nothing wrong with saying he, he threw a no hitter. And it's noted that it was a seven inning game, but these were the rules that that we had in the 20 and also this year in the 21 season.
1: Yeah. We know when there's a no hitter and it's done by multiple pitchers.
3: Right. Yeah. No uh, credit to him too, because he, he had not been pitching well at all.
0: Right.
3: Yeah. His ERA was like over seven before that game. So uh, it's a good bounce back for him.
1: And, yes, I do have a seven-inning no-hitter in an all-star game when I was 15, Ken.
3: <laughs> Good for you. See? I figured there was a soft spot in your heart for the seven-inning game, right?
1: Well, we didn't play nine back then. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't till college. So, uh, seven innings, yeah. But, yeah, you're right on Bumgarner. I mean, it, it, really there had to have been a lot of people looking around going, wait a minute, we signed this guy for $85 million and this is all we're getting.
3: Yeah, his velocity was a little better. I I saw yesterday he got up to around 92 on occasion. Uh, the A's really cuffed him around, as you'll recall in the start that he you know he made against the A's in Phoenix.
1: So I'm looking at Matt Chapman, and I'm just wondering when you know he's got one hit in his last 22 at bats. He's batting 158 for the year. It's I I know he's healthy, but he's just struggling to make contact. Ken, I just don't know how do you get him going.
3: It's a great question, Chris. The only thing that that we can point to is what he had talked about, and that is that he fell into some bad habits last year trying to compensate for the hip injury. Um, I like what he said, and I think it was Martin Gallegos. They had a long quote from Matt that he posted that if he can just kind of stay with the process and keep doing what he's doing, that eventually the hits will fall. And that's really the only way you can look at it. You can't panic if you're a guy like like Chapman and try to stay with your routine and, and work on the fundamentals and, and assume that uh, you know, you're a good player and it's going to kick in at some point. But he did talk about the fact that when you lose your legs as a hitter, and that's what happened last year, and he tried to compensate for it, and he struggled before eventually succumbing to the hip uh, surgery, Chris. You get into the habit of using your upper body and Good hitters, especially guys like Matt, who has great power to center. We've seen it right center, excellent power out there. You've got to use your lower body. So hopefully over time, Chris, um, he'll kind of rework things and get back to the kind of hitter that he was and the kind of fundamentals that he's used uh, to get to this point in his career.
1: Well, the good thing is his teammates around him have been getting it done and Just the story of this lineup, Ken. There's so many great – Mark Can is a great story. Ramon Laureano, Matt Olson, my God, Jed Lowry. When you look up and down this lineup, just talk about with all these guys, everybody's got this tremendous story about how they got here and how they're performing for the A's.
3: It gives us a lot to talk about too, right? I mean, Canada leading off and and doing the kind of job that I don't think a lot of people around the game expected, the A's. I think are not surprised at what he's done but i think i do think though chris they have some guys have to step it up i mean they've got some averages that are under 200 in the lineup today so and i know they're not happy about that and you miss chad pinder i mean especially when you're facing lefties and the a's are going to have a string where they're going to see some left-handed starters uh they won last night in john means and rich hill today and these are the kind of games where Chad Pinder could have really impacted the game for the A's offensively.
1: Yeah, who would have ever thought, like, when, when, when he got hurt, it looked like he banged his head against the wall, and then to find out it was his knee, and 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 no clue he would have been out this long.
3: He had tweaked it during the spring, though, Chris, and he was trying to play through it a little bit, too. So it wasn't just that event going back to the wall against the Astros, the ball that Altuve hit to right field. So there was a little something going on before that, Chris. So it wasn't solely uh, what happened during that game, which has eventually turned out to be the sprained knee.
1: You know, I'm just looking at it now since you mentioned it. The A's have four players in their lineup today hitting under 200. And then they got two other players hitting under 250 with Piscotty. Piscotty's been hitting the ball a lot better he's be still at 234 and uh, Ramon at 227. That's some really low batting averages in the lineup today.
3: Yeah, no, they got to step it up. There's no question about it. And it's going to be a great matchup against this club. The other thing that when really it comes into focus, when you play the Rays and especially on the carpet, you have to do all the nuanced things, Chris, and all the fundamental things, because you know, the Rays are very adept at the roof. There is so these are the kinds of games where you have to have like the supreme focus and concentration from start to finish in these ball games.
1: The one thing I'll take away from the Rays, you know, being there in Tampa and seeing them in Oakland, I don't think there is a team that works more on fundamentals. They, 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 they as a unit, take ground balls together every single day. Most guys just get their, their work in with a coach hitting fungos. Mm-hmm. They actually take infield together before every single game. That's why these guys are so tough to beat. They're so fundamentally sound.
3: Do that too. And we had asked Matt Olson about that on his zoom call before the game yesterday and the things that he does uh, with the rest of the infielders that people don't see because it's so early before the games. But yeah, I mean, that's what I was talking about mentioning. And that goes back, I think too, to Joe Madden and the kinds of things they were trying to instill in their ball club and, the other thing is, we've never seen Randy Arozarena play, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I mean, what an incredible story he was in the postseason last year for these guys.
1: No doubt about it. Have a great call, and we will uh, talk to you after the game.
3: Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. Hey,
1: it's great to have you on the program again. How have you been doing
4: in 2021? Hey, it's great to be on the program with you, and I uh, appreciate it always. I'm I'm doing well over here, and. Uh, Tampa Bay, my, my home city here in uh, St. Pete. And, uh, man, life couldn't be any better for me. And I got to tell you, it's been an interesting watching you guys from afar defend your
1: championship. And, I mean, who would have thought the Boston Red Sox would have got out to such a hot start? What's it like been in the East?
4: Yeah, you know, you see what Boston's doing. They're playing good baseball. Uh, over here on it, our end, we're, we've got some new faces. We've been battling some injuries um, all across the board, but you know we've got young guys coming up and stepping up and playing their part. And you know we're 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 battling each and every night. You, you, like you said, you, you've looked uh, over here and how things have been going. Kind of, uh, we're keeping an even keel right now, trying to catch somewhat of a hot streak. But uh, like I said, just just battling some injuries and, and grinding through right now, early in the season.
1: You know, obviously we haven't been able to be around you guys, and one of the last managers we spoke with face-to-face was at the winter meetings in San Diego was Kevin cash. And you know, we talked to Kevin about how the A's and the rays are just so similar, the way they're built, their issues that they deal with on the field, the issues of trying to get a new ballpark. So I've asked Kevin this, and I'll ask you, do you, whenever you play the rays, do you feel like it's a a mirror image of you guys? Uh,
4: You know what? I, I will say something about, uh, you know, the, the Rays fan base and, and being from here, you know, we were an expansion team in 98. And so we, we got a late start on our fan base. You know, I was four years old when the Rays became a team. So what I like to tell people is like, we're one generation away from having, you know, diehard fan base like the rest of the league. Um, You know, when, when I, when people my age start having kids, you know, that, that is when, you know, that fan base starts to grow because all of our uh, parents were, were fans from, you know, whether like my family's from Illinois, so they were Chicago fans, but, you know, Tampa Bay being an expansion team, my age group are the, is the group that, you know, we rooted for the Rays growing up. And when we start having kids, They'll be Rays fans as well. So, you know, we're, we're just a little behind being an expansion team. I like to tell people we're one generation away from having this place packed out. But when we're playing, uh, you know, a team like the A's, very similar when it comes to payroll, you know, having young guys, guys from the minor leagues, you know, homegrown players having to step up. And make a name for their themselves at the big league level. You know that's that's just how we go about our business. And honestly, I I, I like it. I, I love being a part of this organization. I think we're they're doing a heck of a job from from top to bottom.
1: You know, you make a fascinating point. And I've never even thought about that. It's like, yeah, a, as an expansion team, I think you have to say, you know, kind of similar to, you know, like the Marlins or or the Rockies or you know these teams that you know, now you're going to have generations of kids who all they know are the Rays. They don't know, you know, Yankee fans or they, that's fascinating.
4: Yeah. You have to understand that all these other teams have been around for, you know, a hundred years. They have their generation of generation of fan base. I was four years old when the Rays became a team and I've been a fan of them since growing up. So now when my generation starts having kids, we can you know, start to develop that generational fan base, but everyone wants to hate on the on, on the raised fan base, but it's like, hey, we were late to the game, guys. Like you this this is a process. We're only twenty-five years old. You you, you know, so it's 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 takes some patience. All these other teams, they've been around for hundreds of years. So, you know, what I mean
1: Well, I gotta tell you, we've been defending you guys here on A's Cast Live. Uh, you know, because you, you get you get the national northeast media who, you know, they're all in love with the Yankees, and they say that the Rays are the little brother of the Yankees. It's like, no, they're not. They've been hammering you. You've won like seven series against them, including postseason. So it's like they need to get off that narrative. You guys are too good. They need to start showing you a lot more respect because, I mean, if, if you want to call this a
4: rivalry, it's been one-sided lately. <laughs> well, yeah, you, well, you know that the players over there, they, they respect us. They know that the Rays, when, when they play us, they got to bring their best baseball. And We know when we play the Yankees, we got to bring our best baseball. But we take a lot of pride when, the, when when those guys come into town or we go into Yankee Stadium to, to play our hearts out, to, to play our best. And, you know, the, the, the comments from their fan base about us being little brothers or whatever they want to say about us, like you said, you know, we, we, we take we take pride in that and, and we want to win each and every every day, but – uh, that, ex- that expands through across the league, not just the Yankees. You know,
1: I, I, I've wanted to ask you this about the World Series. So w- all of us in the playoffs are in a bubble, right? Especially out here, out west. And you guys are at Petco Park. You win the American League. And then you go to Texas. And for the first time all year, now you see fans – the Dodgers have been there for now weeks in the same hotel, same clubhouse. They're used to playing with fans. What kind of advantage do you think that was for LA versus you guys just showing up and now all of a sudden there's fans for the first time all year?
4: Yeah. You know, first off, you, you got to give credit where credit's due, Chris. And, you know, they played a better series than us. And and quite frankly, they were, they were the better team that series. And and I, you know, hats off to them. They took advantage in, in situations with runners on base and, you know they they put things together. As for the advantage of the fans, you know, 98% of that stadium was Dodger fans every single game. But you got to take that out of it. When it when it comes to the World Series, the energy's there regardless if you're getting booed or whatnot from the other team. You're 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 at peak performance. You're at peak focus. It's the World Series, so you know, you can't, you can't sit here and say, oh, they had, you know, an advantage or any excuses like that. They played better baseball and that's what it came down to. And you know, that, and that, and that's, that's the end of it.
1: You know, when, when you do really special things, especially for your hometown team, people never forget. You're the first guy since Kirk Gibson in 1988 to have that walk-off hit two outs, team trailing, just take us through what that experience was as a professional.
4: Oh, man, it was uh, something special. Obviously, the the most uh, exciting to date in my career. Um, but, you know, just the, the circumstances leading up to to that at-bat, you know, not being on the ALCS roster because of, uh, you know, having to play seven in a row that playoff, and we needed extra pitching, rightfully so. But to having one at-bat in the World Series and, it, uh, being able to just make something happen for the team at that moment—it's—it's uh, special, and I, I feel very blessed to have been put in that situation and had that opportunity, and actually taking advantage of that opportunity. I know, growing up, you know, being in the backyard with your friends, you always dream of that opportunity. Bases loaded, you know, obviously there's only die on first and second, but when you're younger, dreaming of bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, you know, two outs, you're down by one run. You, every kid in across the world who's played baseball has been in that situation before as a kid, you know, just for being in the backyard and to be able to have that opportunity as a big leaguer is man, just a blessing in itself. And uh, you know, like I said, I wish we would have won the world series. It would have made it that much more memorable, but I'm, I'm glad that I have something like that uh, to, to be thankful for
1: and you got the airplane going and you got your 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 teammates pacing you around the field. I mean, that was awesome.
4: Yeah, it was like a kid in the candy store, Chris, just pure emotion, pure joy and and that's what came out. It's not like that was predecided that I was going to airplane around the outfield after I walked it off, you know. That's just that was like that was a kid coming on me.
1: All right, when I was growing up, now I'm older than you. I'm 49. And the WWF, my favorite wrestler, was Randy Macho Man Sa- Savage. <laughs> I loved, the Macho Man, yeah, I loved. And I, I actually went to wrestling events as a kid. You live next to the Macho Man?
5: Oh, yeah.
4: Snap into a Slim Jim. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, you know, I, Chris, I didn't get to really appreciate him uh, until he passed away in a meaning, Like, I didn't grow up knowing who Randy Macho Man Savage was I didn't know how much of a an icon he was in the wrestling world until he had passed away. And I start telling people, Oh, that was my neighbor. Like we were friends. Like we played basketball together that we, you know, that, that, that was the, our, you know, our friendship. And then people are like, no way. Like it got blown up. Everyone like, you know, watched him and said that he was the man and all this. And I was like, Holy cow. Like I had no clue, but what a great guy. Rest in peace to my man, Randy. Uh, his, his wife still lives next door to us and just, they were just a sweet family. Do you know, he
1: was, did you ever talk baseball with him? He was a minor league baseball player.
4: Yeah, I, I think he was in the minor league system with St. Louis. Uh, you know, we never really got into wrestling or things about his past. It was more just, uh, you know, how a school kid, like let's play some basketball, let's play some horse and, uh, just, you know conversation like that. And I think he enjoyed that just because I wasn't a fan, you know, I wasn't over there bothering him, but more so just, just more of a friend.
1: No, that's, that's, that's a great story. Let's end on this. What's it going to mean to you guys to, to repeat and win the AL East? Ah, you know,
4: I think it would, it it, it would mean, you know, the everything that's what we strive to, to that's why we play baseball to win, to win the world series. but starting with winning the East and, you know, we're coming out here each and every day and working our butts off, just like every other guy across the league and every team. And, you know, that's, that's our business and we're going to continue to do what we do.
1: Hey, we always appreciate the time. Be safe and hopefully we'll see you soon and, and good luck to you guys the rest of the year. Hey, thank you
4: for having me, Chris. Always a pleasure. Take care.
1: Oh where, well, you know life is pretty good for the Oakland A's right now. You know it started out rough, but uh, amazing the turnaround that this ball club has had.
2: Yeah, I think I could suffer through winning what uh, 14 out of 15 games every couple of weeks. Uh, that's not so bad. But uh, yeah, it's uh, we're trying to turn things around here in Tampa Bay. Uh, but and I'd be right now I'd be satisfied with one uh, in the right direction for this team. We're just having a tough time putting some uh, you know hits together, some runs on the board, but. You know, I think at the the bottom line is it's all about pitching and defense for us, and our defense has been there uh, for the most part all season long. Maybe a little sloppy at the beginning of the year, but over the last couple, two or three weeks, it's been better. And our pitching, I still think, uh, as I say to Andy many times during our broadcast, I think it's a little bit like my dad's 69 Vista Cruiser that I was learning how to drive back in 1980. Uh, Most times it would start, be a little rough at the beginning, and uh, maybe, uh, you know, kind of putter around for a little while, but... Once it got going, it really started to hum. So, uh, uh, you know, I think right now we're kind of waiting for this la- this pitching staff to kind of all come together, and and hopefully it will here. We got a nice start from Rich Hill yesterday. We're hoping for more of the same from Michael Walkett here tonight.
1: Yeah, how about our, 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 our old friend Rich Hill at 41 years old still spinning that breaking ball up there?
2: Breaking ball, cutter. I mean, uh, there was nothing straight yesterday against the A's, and uh, it was nice to see for him. I think he needed that uh, as much as we needed to see it because he had been struggling a little bit. He'd been giving up four runs at each of his starts, uh, whether that start was six innings long, four innings long, or two innings long. So I'm sure he was happy to see a start where he gave up uh, less than that. And really, uh, you know, one mistake, uh, you know, again, you know, and and it's hard to argue when you give up a couple of hits and you strike out 10. I'll take that kind of performance for Mitchell every single day and twice on Sunday if we need it. But uh, it was definitely good to see and uh, much needed to uh, keep this Rays offense that, really has been uh, rather quiet here over the last few days, uh, at least within striking distance.
1: You know, for years, the A's have been slow starters. And the theory behind it is there's always new guys coming into the clubhouse and they've got to learn to win together and play together. And it takes a while. Uh, This core for the A's, not so much. The core has been here now for a couple of years. There was a sprinkle of some other, some new guys, but for the most part, is that maybe the problem going on with the Rays right now? There was a lot of change and you guys are at this point learning how to play together?
2: I think there's maybe a little bit to that, but uh, you know, I think the biggest thing right now for us, we, we've lost, I think, three games this uh, year already where we had the lead in the seventh inning or later, which is something that we haven't done for the past couple of years when our bullpen's been intact. I mean, when you take a team that goes to the World Series and you already subtract Blake Snell and Charlie Morton from it because of a, a trade and because of a free agency. And then before you even start the season, your best reliever and Nick Anderson goes down with an arm injury. And then you start the season and your second best reliever and Pete Fairbanks goes down with a shoulder injury. And then you lose Cody Reed, who was supposed to be a high leverage guy. And, uh, you know, you just uh, go down the line. I think all those things add up. I, I think when you mentioned it, we have a core. I think our everyday lineup is pretty much the same guys that we had toward the end of last year and then into this season. And, and right now, those guys are the ones that are kind of being a drag on this team. Our offense, especially with runners in scoring position has not been what it needs to be. And uh, you know, we are our, our, our ID, our DNA is all about run prevention. And the defense has been there because those guys have played together now for the last several years. Our pitching is still kind of rounding its way into form because we've got a couple of moving parts in there. We brought in Waka, we brought in Hill. Uh, we're trying to see how about, preserving some innings on some guys. Tyler Glass now has been tremendous. Uh, Even in his last couple of games where he's had little hiccups, those are games that uh, he lasted to, what, the fifth or sixth inning on, and those are games maybe two years ago or even last year he probably doesn't even get out of the first or second inning. So I I think our pitching is going to be fine. I think our defense is going to be outstanding. My concern right now is about the offense. We're seeing a lot of the same things that we saw for the last six weeks of the regular season last year and then into the postseason without the benefit of Randy Rosarina going nuts. And yeah. uh and right now Randy's getting base hits, but he's not hitting home runs every other, bad like he was last October.
1: Yeah, I got the note on him. He he's only hitting 455 with four runs and four RBIs in the last six games. I mean, is that any good?
2: <laughs> you know what? Can they say hitting is contagious. So he's got to take his mask off and get that to some of the other guys in our lineup. Uh you know, it's it's he's been good. I mean, you know, the other thing is right now they've really been giving him a steady diet of fastballs at the top of the zone. And he's had a tough time laying off it. Now those are borderline pitches. Some could be strikes. We don't know if the umpire is going to call them strikes because he never takes one, uh, you know, but he's been getting on top of those a little bit and a lot more ground balls. Uh, the other day uh, in one of our uh, final games we had over the weekend against the blue Jays, he did get underneath one and hit a big three run homer for us uh, much needed, but yeah, he's been, he's been good. He's, he's going to go up there and swing. Would love to see him maybe start thinking about taking some walks. But you know what? When the other guys behind you are struggling, kind of like they did last uh, October, uh, you know he, he's providing a big, big chunk of the offense. Joey Wendell's been really, really good. He's going through a little bit of a quiet spell here over the last couple of days. But uh, you know I, I asked Kevin Cash with uh, my broadcast partner, Andy Free just a couple of moments ago. I said, why does it seem like it's so much easier for eight or nine guys to go into a slump at the same time than it is to get eight or nine guys hot. And uh, he hopes we can turn things around here over the next few days.
1: You know, the Northeast just drives me nuts. And, you know, they're talking about, oh, you know, the Rays are the little brother of the Yankees. Like, no, they're not. The Rays have been beating up the Yankees. at seven straight series, uh, including the the postseason. This narrative has to stop.
2: (laughs) But it's not. You know, we've only got one writer, Mark Topkin, uh, compared to their uh, stable fold uh taking a term from kevin cash you know it's it's and and also the the narrative's a lot easier when the national guys are you know quite honestly as andy and i will also attest i think sometimes just a little lazy because they do get all the information on the yankees and the red sox because they are so uh, you know based out of the northeast where they read and, and gather more information about them than the little tidbits they might get on the rays uh here and there from mark topkin or from our broadcasts or what have you so uh, if they were to do, dig like you did, and you just mentioned it, our, we, we've dominated the Yankees. And, you know, even to the point where D.J. LeMahieu at the beginning of the year said, oh, we're better than them. We did, They just got a couple of breaks. Well, I don't know how you get just a couple of breaks and win a regular season 8-2 to two, and then get just a couple of breaks and win a postseason uh, 3 games to 2 and then do what we've done so far here in 2021. I think as Andy and I said, though, last night, too, as we were walking out of the ballpark, we've dominated the Yankees so far this season. we got to start learning how to beat somebody else, though. and uh, it won't matter if we don't learn how to beat anybody else what we do against the yankees because uh, we're going to be too far down to make any kind of a difference
1: what did you guys say on your broadcast last night with the challenge and elvis at the plate being called out and how did you guys see it and how did you talk about it
2: well you know originally uh you know we, we looked at it when i saw the first replay i thought he was safe um and we talked about it and we we kind of figured uh you know that maybe there would be a reversal but at the same time uh, I've had a chance to go to the, uh, you know, the command center in New York City, and I can kind of understand a little bit of what they're thinking. And I, I looked and I said, you know what, there, could he have touched that sleeve? Could there have been just a minuscule swipe of the sleeve? And we've been on the other side of it, Chris, where I've said, uh, you know, if it had been called safe originally, there's no way that gets overturned out. And so I'm sure that's what Bobel was complaining about at the end, uh, maybe a little bit of the, uh, the, the positioning of the umpire. Uh, you know, it's nowhere near what happened in that Atlanta-Philadelphia game. Uh, but like I said, you know, we don't look at it with, uh, you know, uh, raised blue glasses on. I, I think originally and still we thought that if we were in those seats in New York City, we probably would have said he was safe. But at the same time, to the letter of the law, we could not tell if maybe he did swipe the sleeve. Maybe there was just one little nick of the sleeve. And so if there's not clear and convincing evidence, I guess that's the way you have to come back. But I can understand why age fans – would be uh, somewhat upset about that particular call because originally we saw the first couple of uh, highlights. Andy and I thought he might've got his hand in there before the tag was applied.
1: So what is the command center like? I know there's umpires there.
2: Are there video specialists there? What did you see? Yeah, there are video specialists who actually do handle the stopping and the starting and the maneuvering of the frame by frame or whatever it's called now, pixel by pixel. I'm not sure of all the terms. That's why I stick with radio, but uh, among other reasons, but you know, it's one of those things where uh, there, there are people there, there's a, a, an umpire that's overseeing this, telling him to stop, switch to you know camera number six, switch to camera number four. Uh, there were some things too where they could actually rotate and, and now they can sync up picture by picture uh, to, to actually see uh, from one angle to another if they think that they see a tag or don't see a tag, see if the tag's being placed while the hand's going on the plate or, in the case of a guy on the bases, on the bases. So, they—they, uh, they, I mean, it really does. It's really an impressive setup. It really is. Um, I know they took a lot of hits for that Sunday night uh, snafu that they had. I don't understand how you mess that up. But uh, overall, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Major League Baseball replay. There's also a supervisor there, an umpire supervisor in attendance that maybe – him a second set of eyes there's other there's a, I think maybe even one other umpire that might be in attendance too so they, they've got if, if there's a tough tough call they've got different sets of eyes but at the end of the day it's the guy who's in charge of that game that will ultimately make that call do, do you buy the theory that
1: some people believe they just don't want to overturn a lot of calls because it makes their their guys look bad
2: I've never been a real big conspiracy theorist guy, going into everything that's going on in this world, too, right now. I mean, we've had a lot of uh, people that want to talk about conspiracy theories. I'd like to believe in the good in people. I I want to believe that the people in New York, just like the people on the field, want to get that call right. Um, If you hear my broadcasts, uh, you know, I'll be the first to call it. an umpire if he gets it wrong. But I know they have a very, very tough job to do. And I really, truly believe that at the end of the day, they want to get the call right. And, and, and it, you know, if you if you purposely, if you're trying to protect your buddy on the field to prevent him from losing points, all you're doing is really hurting the game. You're not just hurting yourself and your buddy. You're hurting the entire game. So I, I don't think there's anything, my opinion, I don't think there's any truth in, in the fact that they want to protect their buddy. I really, truly believe the umpires want to get the call right. And uh, and, and that's just my opinion.
1: Well, hopefully with the CDC starting to lighten up on the guidelines, I don't know. You guys might be able to travel soon. I know you traveled during the, the postseason.
2: We did. We uh, ended up going out to San Diego for the American League Championship Series. And then we also traveled for the World Series in uh, Arlington, Texas. And uh, I understand we just uh, talked with Mark Topkin, our B writer for the Tampa Bay Times, that the Rays uh, Tier One people have reached the 85% threshold. So now it's just a matter of maybe another week or 10 days for everybody to get their uh, two weeks in after their last shots. And then we'll see how it plays out. I know that Major League Baseball still has a lot of protocols in place that uh, prevent us right now from getting on the charter. Um, I'm not sure Andy and I uh, really want to start the traveling commercial to get the place to place. Uh, it's not very convenient from Tampa Bay. Uh, the closest uh, road uh, trip in our division is Baltimore, and that's still over two hours away. So uh, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. I know we're anxious to get back on the road. Um, you know, it's I know it's going to be a different place than it was. 2 years ago a lot of my favorite establishments unfortunately probably didn't survive covid or uh, maybe are under new management or what have you but the bottom line is in this day and age in 2021 most of our jobs are getting easier because of technology so on and so forth our job is getting harder trying to call a game off a monitor where you see uh, you know again the uh, the static shot from behind home plate where we're trying to see if a white dot or a gray dot got a ball or uh, what the black dot is saying from far away and, this little minuscule white thing that's flying around. We don't know if it's uh, a pixel that went astray or if it's the baseball. It's its really been kind of tough. It's, we uh, When we leave a ball game that we do here at Tropicana Field with the players behind us, uh, it's like doing a regular game as always. And now with the fans back in the stands, albeit limited, it's even better. But when we do a ball game off of the monitor, uh, you know, I leave here with a headache. My eyes are killing me. And it's just a challenge. We're just trying to fight to bring our fans the, uh, the proper broadcast that they deserve. And, um, I know there are some people out there that say you can't tell, uh, but you know, I, I don't know for Andy. I can't speak for Andy, but I try to make four or five mistakes on purpose just so our bosses want to uh, send us back. On the road. <laughs> but, uh, I don't want them to think that we're doing such a great job. Let,
1: let's end on this. Cause we had Brett Phillips on yesterday and obviously he's
2: no, he's no fun. Is he? Oh God. And, and so it is Seminole, Florida, right, right, right by Tampa. Seminole, Florida is part of Pinellas County. It's a it's a town right here that's next to uh, St. Pete, Clearwater, uh, on your way toward uh, the great beaches of uh, St. Pete, Clearwater, and uh, Seminoles. Uh, right down, you know, you can go right down Twenty Second Avenue, or, or actually Gandy, and and run right into it. Don Zimmer actually lived in Seminole before he passed. Uh, his wife Soot, still lives there, so it's within striking distance of Tropicana Field, just a couple minutes away. And uh, he, he really, I mean. It, He's a guy who burst onto the scene with that laugh, and then last year even uh, grew from that with that big hit. He's been uh, a great guy to have in the clubhouse and in the area. Did you know in this COVID uh, situation that we're in, he did some nice things for us during the off season as he visited with fans. And uh, I can't be happy. I'm, I'm the only thing I'm disappointed with is that Andy and I really have not yet had a chance to meet with him. We've talked to him on Zooms, we've talked to him over the clubhouse and uh, the dugout, Mike, but have not really had a chance to meet with him one on one. And we're really looking forward to do that.
1: Yeah. He, he may, I think he made the best point I've heard about the Rays where he said, Hey, listen, when Tampa, when Tampa was established, he was only four years old. So it's been building a fan base year after year. We're now going to have, we're now going to start having generations of kids who are growing up and then they're having kids. And it's like the fan base is really starting to build. And that's, you know, one of the challenges of an expansion team. But I thought it was a great point that, you know, he was four years old, but now when his kids and that next generation kid started to really build that fan base.
2: And I think it's, it's, it's coming. And I think again, again, When there are uh, almost a thousand people coming into the state of Florida on a daily basis uh, you know again this market's only going to continue to grow Um, I know there's still a lot of things going on as far as the stadium issue with us I'm privy to some of the information Uh, I read most of it in the newspapers or find out more on uh, on television Uh, we're still talking about the sister city concept but I'm a guy that uh, has uh, my residence is on the other side of the bay in Tampa where I think there are more moms dads wallies and the beavers where uh, again, there are more and more people uh, uh, building out there east of Tampa. If you moved over to the Tampa side, you'd also then incorporate Lakeland and Orlando a little bit more. Uh, you go north to Wesley Chapel, and that place is uh, just absolutely exploding. On a, you know, They're building 1,000 uh, thousand home uh, you know, neighborhoods by the month, it seems. And so I- I'd be a big fan of moving over to the Tampa side, and I think it would work over there. But right now, we're still trying to dot the I's and cross the T's on the sister city concept. Um, you know, I'll see how that plays out. But uh, I, I still think that baseball would do well in this market. We've got a great TV market. I think the, the misnomer on this is, again, that nobody cares. And I think I've told you guys before, and I know you guys have done your homework. Our TV ratings are usually number one in the market. Our radio ratings are very, very good at or near the top of the market on a nightly basis. And our social media hits are uh, as good as any team in baseball in our market size. So people care about the Rays. We've just had a tough time getting them to come into the seats here at Tropicana Field. And that's why I think getting, you know, going to more to where some of those masses are would be a step in the direction, but we'll have to wait and see how this all plays out.
1: Well, it's great to see you. I can't wait for the day. You know how we do this show on the field down the third baseline. I can't wait to the day we got you back on the program on the field in Oakland. Be well, my friend. Have a great call. And hopefully we'll all see each other soon. I sure hope so.
2: Thanks again, as always, for having me. I appreciate it. Have a blast. Take care. See you guys later.
1: Martin Gallegos joins us, MLB.com, covers the Oakland Athletics. You know, we are talking about the challenge last night, and you just go, these umpires don't want to overturn calls. It's just blatantly obvious. So we've said, you know, one of two things. Change it to where you send the replay to New York and they don't know what the call is, or you take umpires completely out, get video experts in there who don't know the umpires. So they don't feel like they're going to show the umpires up because they don't have a relationship with them. Replay's not working right now. And it's, and it's not the technology. It's the humans back in New York using the technology.
6: How do you feel about it? Man? I mean, just based off yesterday's game, I mean, I feel like there has to be some type of, you know, rehaul of this thing because that was, that was about as clear as I've ever seen. I know we had a, a play earlier this season with the Phillies um, at home plate that was kind of egregious as well. But this one, I mean, the, the angle clearly showed you was safe. Um, everybody, I mean, even Tampa Bay side, it seemed like they were all in agreement that it was safe. So, um, you know, I was it was, I mean, that was about as clear as, as I've ever seen a play and it still didn't get overturned. So, um, you know, something definitely got to change. I know Bob Melvin wasn't happy about it. And he obviously voices this pleasure post game yesterday, but. Um, that was that was I never seen one that clear uh watching a game live that wasn't overturned that was, that was pretty pretty crazy to see yeah, yeah I knew Bob wasn't thrilled
1: when you know his post game interviews which we play every post game have been around six seven minutes it was like a minute 30. I went oh, Bob wasn't into talking last <laughs> night and yeah you see the frustration of it it's like baseball has to realize your credibility is being challenged when it's this bad. And also the fact that we get nothing, like, what were they seeing? Why, why did they think he was not safe? Why can't they tell us? Why can't they give us something? All we get is out and that's it.
6: Yeah. You know, it would, it would be good to at least, that would be a good step just to get that. I mean, I know in in the NBA, we kind of get those you know reports after the game about referees and what they saw and um, yeah, it seems like we're always just kind of left in the dark in these situations. We never really get a full, a real explanation of, of what, what went into the decision. And, uh, you know, to this point, we haven't gotten anything for yesterday's call. Um, and I don't know if we'll, we'll get one anytime soon. But um, certainly, I mean, like you said, something, there, there's got to be a better way to do this. Bottom line, there's got to be a better way to, to go about this.
1: Yeah, th- there's no question. But let's stay on the positive here. They've won 14 of 15. And they've been road warriors this year. And after that start where we were all like, oh, boy, 0-6, 1-7, and, 6, 1 and you know, this is one of the best turnarounds in, in, since the team got to Oakland. There's no
6: doubt. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, the, the way it happened so fast, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, they, they were saying, you know, throughout the six-game losing streak that, you know, they weren't feeling, you know, any pressure, or feeling down or anything. Um, and it, it certainly seemed that way. I mean, they were they were just kind of the same team no matter what. And that, that's kind of a credit to Bob Melvin and what he's been able to do in that clubhouse, just instilling that mentality, just kind of staying even keel no matter what's going on. If they're on a big winning streak or losing streak, it doesn't seem like this team kind of changes their personality. They're always the same guys. And um, that certainly showed in that quick turnaround. I mean, to go from such a dramatic turnaround, I mean, the first team in baseball to start 0-6 and win 11 games in the same year, they do it in the same month. I mean, that's just crazy. It never happens. But, I mean, with this team, they're just starting to play like the way we knew they w- they w- they would play. I think, you know, we saw in spring training how good they were. And I know spring training doesn't mean a whole lot. But, I mean, we've seen how good this team was the last three seasons. And to see them start 0-6, I think we all kind of were scratching our heads. But, I mean, the way they were going, everything was going wrong for them. There was no way that was going to happen the whole season. I don't think we expected it to turn around this quickly. But they're starting to play like, like the way we, we know they can. They've got a really good lineup they starters. There's not really one guy that stands out, but they've got a pretty good group of starters there and their bullpen, even without Trevor Rosenthal, they seem to have a good bridge um, to close out games between Deekman and, and Trevino and even Petit is starting to pitch more like the Petit that we know here in recent uh starts as well, recent outings as well. So, I mean, they're starting to just play all around the way, like the A's we've seen in the last couple of years. You
1: know, yes. Merrill is amazing. I mean, <laughs> this guy, you know, throwing the ball 85 miles an hour. My theory on this is that these hitters are so used to seeing 95 plus now, even 100. When you got a guy coming in from the right side and he's flipping a breaking ball up there like 80, 78 miles an hour, a fastball at like 85, they just don't have the timing for it. And they're just not used to someone like that. They're used to such high velocity. And it's just, it truly is amazing. And just talk about how Bob puts him in some of the worst situations <laughs> and the guy gets out of it.
6: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I, I, kind of, I come up with like this, this gift that I found on Twitter, just ice water in his veins. That, that's what he has. He's got ice water in his veins. Whenever he comes in, you know, to a tough situation, it doesn't seem to affect him. He's just the same guy on the mound and he's so cool. And just getting those, those big outs against really good hitters. I mean, he comes in and he'll face the middle of the order. A lot of times, these guys who can hit bombs and he's coming up there with his 89 mile per hour fastball and and he somehow is able to just keep guys off balance and then like you mentioned it it obviously make it plays a huge factor when you got a guy like Frankie Montas throwing 98 miles per hour throughout the day and then you go to such a sharp drop in velocity with petite guys can't really pick up on it and you know he's been able to go multi-innings he's been a multi-inning guy for a while now and we've seen that we saw that yesterday went two innings and looked pretty sharp there as well so I mean, it just seems like no matter how old he gets, he's still the same guy. He's the type of guy who I think could pitch into his 40s if he really wanted to. And he'd, he'd have a pretty good role on any team just because he knows what to do to get out. He's so um, – knowledge. his knowledge is crazy. I mean, if you talk to him, um, a lot of times, you know, we get to talk to him in, in English and, and maybe he doesn't get to expand as much as he does in Spanish. But I know from talking to him just in the clubhouse, the guy is so – he has such a big knowledge on all the hitters around the league. You ask him about any hitter and he has he knows he knows what they like what what they look for what what they struggle against and uh, that obviously helps with the other pitchers on the staff as well he's kind of a mentor to them and um, he's such a big uh you know just asset in that team aside from just what he brings on the mound just what he's able to do in the clubhouse he's definitely a leader on that team and you saw it when they were excited to get him back he was a big addition for them to, to come back this season as a as a free agent
1: yeah cuz he's the guy everybody can go to whether it's about on the field off the field business how to handle yourself that was I think that's the one thing we've learned and normally let's face it a middle reliever is not going to be the leader of your team but that's how much respect everybody has for him because he is I mean we may not see it but all the players tell us and they tell you yeah this is the guy
6: yeah. I mean, they, they look up to, I mean, Luzardo calls him like a second dad. I mean, Bassett has learned so much from him. just his preparation. He's, he's kind of adopted his, his uh, workout, pregame workout routine. A lot of the pitchers on the staff have adopted his pregame workout routine and he's so durable. I mean, I don't remember the last time he went on the, on the injured list. He probably only got on there a couple of times in his career. So he's been so durable and he knows how to get through with the grind of a full season. He's won world series. I mean, he, he's done it all. He's done it all in this league. He was, basically banished from the from MLB for a couple years because he was performing so bad and he went to Mexico and kind of reinvented himself he's been through it all so I know the players and Bob Melvin respects him. Bob Melvin I mean he might be one of Bob Melvin's top top three favorite players ever I mean he's known him for so long and he just always every time we ask about him he just gushes over him just loves him and can't say enough good things about him so I mean I'm I'm glad he's back just because he's a he's a good guy um in the clubhouse and and he's obviously been a big, big factor here early on in this, in this success that the A's have had.
1: So I, I got the front page of the game notes today, and it's just, it's whether it's the starters, the bullpen, the hitting, you know, winning close games. Is there anything that has surprised you for this ball club for this uh, early part of the season?
6: I think it's probably been the seamless transition uh, in the late innings with Trevino, just kind of stepping up as a closer. I mean, I thought, you know, with Rosenthal going down, there's a little bit of uncertainty there, who was going to take over the closer role for a long time. We thought Jake Deakman was going to be the guy um, and he still might get some opportunities. He's actually closed out a couple of games here recently, but, um, I think we all kind of thought Trevino could be the guy, as long as you know, he was able to kind of show. More of the turnaround stuff that he that he had in spring training and and at the end of last year he's always had the stuff but we just were wondering if he could actually do it in the ninth and so far he's gotten every save opportunity and he's he's performed well in it he's looked like a guy who's done it before and he's really I mean just brought stability to that role that that was the one area where I thought you know maybe they could see some struggles here early on that hasn't been the case early on they didn't get any save opportunities but now that they've been in those situations they've they've gotten them all they've converted them all I don't think they've blown a save yet and they're one of maybe Maybe the only team who's done that this year. So um, credit to them just stepping up and everybody kind of elevating the role with a with a loss with Rosenthal. That was a big loss. I mean, they, they signed him with big expectations to replace Hendricks, and they're kind of replacing Hendricks on their own right now with other arms that are contributing.
1: You know, Frankie Montas going tonight has allowed an MLB worst 10 barrels this season tied with two others. And I read that and I go, a guy that has that kind of stuff that's in that head scratching?
6: Yeah, I mean, you expect, I mean, he's going to miss bats all the time. And, and and he's looked dominant at times. I mean, the, the start he had before his last one against the Tigers, I mean, he was lights out. I know it's the Tigers, but, um, you know, the last, even the start before that against the Astros, he looked well. He just has kind of been inconsistent. Even, even last year, it was kind of in hit or miss. He started out great last year and then kind of fell off. He had a back issue that he was dealing with. So it's just kind of inconsistency right now. You want to see a little bit more. Um, stability, you know, there knowing what you're going to get every fifth, fifth start fifth day, you know, so far it hasn't been the case. Um, we'll see tonight against Tampa Bay. Um, but you know, you, you, you expect him to be one of your top guys. I mean, he's, he's been here for a few years now and, and you expect him to kind of be a workhorse type guy who could go deep into games consistently. And, uh, I know the A's are still looking to see that on a more steady basis. We'll see if he could get that turned around here. How do you think it plays out for Mike Flyers? Well, it sounds like it's it's set in stone that'll be in the bullpen right now. I mean, over the course of a season, I mean, they're going to need another starter at some point. Whether it's someone goes down due to injury or uh, someone starts, you know, struggling a little bit, though, or they need to just give a guy an extra day of rest. I'm sure he's going to get a start at some point. I don't think he'll stay in the bullpen the whole year. But right now, they're just they're just going to use him, I guess, as a long relief guy. And I know it's kind of a you know a tough situation for him because he's been such a big part of this team the last three years and has been the that veteran guy you can rely on um you know in terms of just going out there and giving you a a quality start every time out um over the last three years since he joined the A's I mean he's been such a steady guy there so it's tough for him to transition I'm sure Bob Melvin doesn't feel too um great about it having to you know put him in the bullpen for now but I mean it seems like he's all he's all in on helping the team however they can I mean he's in a good spot a team that's a perennial playoff contender and he can contribute in any way he can I think they're going to try to try to find ways for him to to do that. Whether it's maybe a guy doesn't go as deep into a game. He can kind of be the bridge guy to the late inning, late inning relievers. We'll see how it goes early on here. But it sounds like for the short term, at least he's going to be a reliever.
1: You know, it's uh, I've been joking with everybody. I know everybody wants to get back out on the road, but uh, four days at the trop and then that long flight home from St. Petersburg. uh, I I think being at your house probably isn't that bad of a deal. (laughs) (laughs)
6: <laughs> yeah yeah no that that trip to Tampa bay is tough man i, I don't miss that one I, I like going to florida but i mean i don't miss that long flight for sure great stuff buddy we appreciate it we'll talk to you soon all right
4: tony thanks
1: brian how you doing it's chris townsend with the oakland a's
7: chris i'm
4: doing
5: very well thank you how are you
1: uh doing well well I, it, it's great to have you on the program again i wish i could say we we, we were there at the trop we, we miss seeing everybody
5: yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, it's very strange, you know, coming to the ballpark. At least there are a few fans, you know, nowadays. Uh, but yeah, it's not the same. You, you don't get to go down to another booth and, and you know, say hi to the fellas. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you're dealing with it too. So you just, I guess, make do, do your job and, and hope one day that that comes back.
1: So for, for, for road games, are you doing it at the Trop or do you go to a studio?
5: We go to a studio. It it, was interesting. The team started in Miami uh, against the Marlins. And so our studio in Tampa wasn't finished. So we went actually to the Fort Lauderdale studio to do those games. And then the team went from there to Boston. We then came back up and did those road games from Tropicana Field. Um, The next road trip, we we did the first three road games from Tropicana Field. And then when they went to Kansas City last week, the studio was operational. Uh, so we were able to get into the into the studio so from now on studio road uh and obviously the drop for home game
1: well as everybody's starting to open up and the cdc is changing things i'm kind of hoping that uh traveling with the team is right around the corner
5: you know that's what i wonder i i you know i know that they are still you know it's to the point that we can't even get down on the same level as the clubhouse um, and so I know that these teams are working to try to get to that 85% threshold so the protocols can be loosened, you know, within the team setting. Um, and, and what I have heard was I would not hold my breath to travel, to be traveling this year. Uh, they said they may, re- you know, what I've heard is they may revisit it. Um, after the all-star break or, or, you know, once you get into the, the, the you know, the, the last third of the season. But, you know, the people that I spoke with were not too optimistic. So we'll see um, that would obviously be, be nice and, and, and fully be back to normal. But right now I'm, I'm not holding out any hope. I'm just taking it a day at a time. Like probably we all should every day and uh, go, go do a good job that day and then move on.
1: Well, we, we just figured out a little equation here. So Joey Wendell got the base hit in the seventh. Your Rays are now one for 39 with runners in scoring position. That's a, in their last 29 at bats, that's a 0.034 batting average with runners in scoring position, the lowest in baseball. Just how tough has that been to watch?
5: <laughs> yeah, you, great question. It's been, um, it's been awful it's been awful to watch because it got to the point where you just would assume, okay, yeah, runner. Well, they, listen, we ha- they haven't gotten it done in how many games, why would they do it now? And so, it, you know, that's, uh, that's a statistic right there does, that does not lend itself to too many wins. And the thing that's most frustrating about it was going, I think, into the game yesterday uh, where the Rays were so awful overall with runners in scoring position, they had given themselves the fifth most played appearances with runners in scoring positions. So it's one thing if you're just not getting anybody out there and you're not able to get them in, but you're getting a lot of guys out there. I mean, you, they have given themselves plenty of opportunities and, and have not been able to get it done. And it's frustrating. And it's led to some, you know, some, some losses that they probably shouldn't have taken.
1: Well, you know, at 12 and 12, I mean, obviously you guys got a really good team defending champions of the American league. It's funny. It's like, All you do is beat up the Yankees. You just got to figure out how to beat other people.
5: Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, you know, the the Yankee uh, matchup is very interesting because a few years ago, and and this team is always, you know, as the Rays became the Rays, going from Devil Rays to Rays, they knew that the Yankees and the Red Sox were the two teams that they were going to have to take down. So they've always had a target on the Yankees. But in the last few years, it's gotten kind of nasty. A lot of hit-by-pitch some bench-clearing incidents, uh, knocking them out of the playoffs a season ago. Um, it, it's gotten a little bit chippy and ugly. So you know when when the Rays go in to play that team that they're going to be sky high. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, they they have played them extremely well as far as game plan. Um, our, the pitching staff for the Rays, have they have a great game plan against that Yankee lineup. They know an awful lot about them. They see them a lot. Um, And so they're able to go in there and have a lot of success against them. Um, And the same thing with the, with the hitters. And they've been able to, over the last couple of seasons, uh, put a hurting on that team. So yeah, they they maybe need to hit the books and and do a little bit more scouting on the other teams, because that has not been as pretty this year.
1: Well, I got to tell you, we love it here on AIDS cast live because you guys have always been so good to us. And, you know, you know, one of the, one of the last guys we've seen in person was Kevin Cash at the winter meetings in San Diego. So we're always pulling for you guys and we hate the Yankees. And so <laughs> I just, I just hate how they try and act like, Oh, it's Tampa Bay. They're the little brother. I'm like little brother. They beat you seven straight series, not you out of the playoffs. If you want to talk about a kind of a rivalry, this is, it's been so one-sided. It's been great from afar. It's been a, it's been great to watch.
5: Well, yeah, really appreciate that. And yeah, said they're, they're, those games are so fun to cover. I, I mean, as fun as it is for you all to be able to look in on those series, it's fun to be up in the booth because you just don't know what you're going to see. You know that the uh, emotions are going to run high and you're not really sure how it's going to, you know, quite how it's going to turn out. But they are certainly exciting uh, on our end, too. And it's funny because, you know, when I was doing my homework for this series, you know, going through the race, going through the eight, there are so many similarities between how these teams are built and have been built over the years that that's kind of how we feel when you guys take on the cheating Astros. I mean, that, we want you guys to, to, to wrap them up and take them down every time that you play them. So as much as you look at us against the Yankees, we're looking back at you guys uh, against the Astros, like take down those trash bag or trash can banging cheaters. Um, and, and, uh, and you know, knocked them down a few pedestals. So that's, uh, that's kind of funny how that's worked out for both of us.
1: You know, Randy Rosarena was Babe Ruth in your guys' postseason run uh, last year. We knew, I mean, it wasn't going to last forever. But right now he's hitting 440 in his last seven games. I know expectations were really high from a power standpoint, but he's showing us, isn't he, he's a really good player.
5: He really is. And, you know, he was the principal of that deal. I think when the first when the deal first went through, um, you you know, with the trade with the Cardinals, that Carlos Martinez coming back as an established hitter. That was the guy. But it was really Randy Arena who, uh, you know, the Rays really had their eye on. And, you know, the thing that really stood out, I I did a deep dive on him and his in his postseason success and it didn't take too long to figure out exactly why he was able to stay so locked in during the postseason. He was just incredible with his approach at the plate as far as getting into his hitting position and then taking his hand directly to the baseball. Hand to the baseball. There was no loopiness in his swing. His swing never got long. He was compact. He was through the middle of the field, and he never wavered in his approach, and that's why he put up Um, you know, that, that's really why he put up those kind of numbers. And so now all of a sudden you, you see what he's been able to do over the last week. Uh, his swing had gotten a little bit long. I think he got a little bit greedy. You know, he was having a lot of success, um, success at the beginning of the season. And then he's like, well, if I'm hitting that good short and compact, now I'm going to really start to swing hard and things weren't going as well for him. Um, and the, the last game against the Yankees, uh, in Yankee stadium, uh, he got the day off and Kevin Cash said, I'm not liking what I'm seeing with his swing right now. We're just gonna give him a day, give him a day in the cage and then get him back out there. So he gave him that day off. He goes in the lineup the next day. He gets a two-o count. You're fully expecting if there's a ball anywhere near the plate, he's gonna come out of his shoes with that really big swing. And he stayed compact and he hit a nice line drive to right field in a two oh count. And you said to yourself, Okay, he got the message and he got compact again. Well you just referenced the numbers over the last week, weeks worth of games, which is when that happened, you know, he has been absolutely uh, on fire and back to that same approach that he had in the postseason.
1: You know, I think about your career. So you're, 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 you're on the the high of that Cleveland Indians team. I mean, that Indians team was just incredible and, and, and you're part of that world series in 1997. And then you get selected in the expansion draft. Not too many guys can ever say they were drafted again as professionals. What was that like?
5: Uh, you know, it was really strange because, you know, I, I was a Cleveland guy. You know, I grew up about 45 miles east of Cleveland. So I'm playing for the hometown team, and we just got uh, our hearts ripped out in Game 7 of the World Series against the Marlins. And we take the flight back to Cleveland, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know what, go back to work, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish this the right way next year. And I remember being at my house in Cleveland, and I was cleaning, and I had ESPN on in the background, and Peter Gammons was talking about the upcoming expansion draft, and he said, I heard there are three names available, and he mentioned Tony Saunders and myself and Kevin Supon, and I was like, wait a minute, I thought I was protected. I had heard through the grapevine that I was protected, and what ended up happening was apparently there was a last minute, my name got taken off the 15-man protected list, and someone else got put on. And so now all of a sudden I was available. And so at that point, um, I realized that there was a real good chance unless the the, the Devil Rays at the time took Jose Mesa or some other Cleveland Indian that I was probably going to Arizona. And so there was that anticipation and part of it was an excitement um, and part of it was, but I, I, I want to play for my hometown team. I mean, this is the team I grew up rooting for. So it was a very strange series of, uh, of emotions you know, the few days before the draft and then going into that day. And when I heard my name called and then they called me and said, we need you in Phoenix tomorrow. I was like, okay, okay, here's a, here's a new chapter. And, uh, and, and, you know, thankfully it worked out because when I went out there, I was going to get a chance to go out there and pitch and pitch every fifth day and establish myself in the game where the way that the Indians were working um, it was one of those young pitchers. You had better be beyond flawless uh, because they would start you a game or two and then send you down and bring up the next guy and send you know, and that's just kind of the way it worked. And so you look back and you go, boy, if I stay with the Indians, it may have taken me a few more years to, to establish myself, and maybe it never happened. So uh, it, it ended up working out and of course go out to Arizona. And a few years later, we won a world series. So uh, that wasn't too bad either.
1: Well, you know, I, I know that that group, and I'm, I'm assuming every group that wins a world series is close but we've talked to Bob Melvin about it because, you know, recently we were playing the Arizona Diamondbacks and Mark Grace got on the Zoom call, Bob Melvin Zoom call, and, they're, and and Grace is like, yeah, Bob, when you and I play golf together, we're unbeatable. We've never lost. And so we were talking to Bob about that, and Bob was like, it's such a tight group that that 2001, the players, the coaches, Bob Brindley, Just talk about, and we'll end on this, just talk about just how special that group was, Gonzo, everybody, to take down the New York Yankees, and you're still close today.
5: You know what? Yeah, because, first of all, that team was built so quickly. You know, that was the fourth season, um, you know, of the Diamondbacks, and I was there from day one, and, you know, you're an expansion team in, in 98, trying not to lose 100 games. Uh, in 1999, you win the division. I mean, you went out and got Randy Johnson, Bob Stodemeyer, and then all of a sudden here comes Kurt Schilling and what we've got. You start adding all these pieces, Mark Grace, Matt Williams, the whole thing. And you had this really cool group of veteran guys um, that were, were really, really good ball players, uh, men of as far as baseball, baseball principle. We're going to do things the right way. We're going to play the game the right way. Uh, we're going to play hard. We're going to hold each other accountable. Um, there was buy-in by everybody, everybody pulling in the same direction. It really was. You know, you start, these names start popping back in your head, Jay Bell, uh, Tony Womack. Um, it, it, it's, it's hilarious that, that how quickly those names come back to you and you realize what a close-knit group it was. And, and Bob Melvin, you know, his, his is not wrong. Uh, you yeah, know, it was Bob Brindley's right-hand man. And, uh, you know, we were able to pull off something special. Um, against the Yankees, and of course that was you know the, the year of you know September 11th um, and everything that was going on in the in the country at that time. So you know the team that we beat, uh, the 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 state of the country, and being able to bring baseball back and 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 the, and the postseason and and be able to do that not only was that special, but then the group of guys that you did it with. So overall, it's just one of those experiences that each and every one of us will will never never ever forget.
1: Well, it's great to hear from you. Good luck the rest of the way, and have a good call tonight, and we'll talk to you the next time we hook up against the Rays.
5: That sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. i always enjoy it.
0: (laughs) Wednesday is known as hump day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Ray, good afternoon. How are you?
7: Johnny, I'm fine. Are you feeling better today?
1: It's amazing. I woke up today like nothing happened. I mean, it's (laughs) and I was hurt. I was hurting so bad yesterday. It was I basically was shaking and had the chills like when we were doing our our, our interviews uh, on Google Meets where we can see each other. I had to put the camera just on my face so you couldn't see that my hands were shaking. And I was like that all nauseous. I couldn't, but then I wake up this morning, I played 18 holes. Ray fell fine. Like nothing ever happened.
7: So I thought maybe you you, you just didn't care that the A's lost a tough game last night. <laughs> well, you know, Ray,
1: I'm tired of bad umpires. I'm, I'm tired of bad. I'm. You think? I'm just, it, it's getting old.
7: Well, I saw something today, and it uh, it, it uh, evaluated Chad Fairchild last night. He was two different umpires because at the beginning of the game, I mean, there, there was a pitcher's strike zone. All of a sudden, he about tight. I mean, it, it got unbelievably tight. And then I saw this evaluation today. I've never seen it before where they talked about the average of this and the average of that. The average of this one thing was 94%. He was at 86 and another one, 93, and he was 84 or something like that. So, I mean, that, that's back-to-back games that it's been tough for the Athletics. Fortunately, they, they won in the first game. But, uh, you know, last night, I, I kind of agree with, uh, with Frank and Montas with Brett Phillips, you know. That was a pitch in the early part of the game It's strike three. It's over. next pitch leaks out over the plate. It's a two-run home run. And you knew something was going to happen, unfortunately, and it did. But, uh, you know, the, the good news about uh, – Sean Murphy crushing that ball deep to left field. The good news, he hit the home run. Bad news, um, Castile, the, the closer said, wait a minute, these guys are sitting on my fastball. And then all of a sudden, here come all the sliders. And that changed everything, especially with Matt Chapman pinch hitting um, for the last out. But, you know, it's a good game. And I think, with, you know, like you were talking with Brian Anderson about, uh, you know, just the, the way things are with the two ball clubs, and they're tight. Uh, they both play good defense, they have good pitching, and you know, a mistake here or there, that's the difference to the ballgame.
1: Well, speaking of Brian, he's such a good guy. And I think that's the thing that, that really stinks about nobody traveling is we we don't, we don't get to see all, all of our friends in the game.
7: You know, you're right. And, and I think Cody, you know, brought up a good point that he didn't play for the race, but you know, he has a locker in the clubhouse. At least I, I saw that when we were traveling several years ago, I saw, he had a a locker in the clubhouse because he's young enough still throw batting practice and you know anytime you get a lefty can throw bp you're going to do that but yeah he had a locker in there and so you know he's a good broadcaster he and Wayne Snatch do a very good job and um, you know you're right that that's probably the biggest problem with not traveling it's just because of the the different cities and the ballparks and the friends that are made and you know in my case over a lot of years both as a player and as a broadcaster and you know, not to see that or be able to have that happen, and you know, same thing with the teams coming in here to Oakland. You know, it's it's a different situation as well because you don't get to see people, and so it's it is bad in that respect. And you know what? I really feel badly. Uh, John Reynolds, uh, Jr. We called him down in Anaheim. He's the stage manager on on our telecast, and uh, those are the people that are are just hurting badly because um, I think Jr. Told me his last live. Uh, game was last March or something like that because he does the uh, I think he does one of the basketball teams plus the uh, Anaheim what Ducks or something the, the hockey team but you know everything shut down because there was no traveling and, and it's the same this year so when we would go in there Jr would be our stage guy and you know that was a, a, a regular job for him and um, but now all of a sudden those people are 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 out of jobs essentially because everything is being done remotely. And, you know, the broadcasters are staying in the hometowns and they're getting help from, you know, they're all working together as far as shooting the games, et cetera. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it, you know, we, we had a tough one. Did, did you know when Brown hit the ball down the left field line last night, you know, I, I put down, you know, strike two. And next thing I know, I see this ball come in and they showed the replay. It was, it was like the ball went down the line. Never. It didn't slice foul. Normally a ball hit like that would slice foul. So those are some of the things that you miss by not being on location. Um, because, you know, it's showing the replay. Brownie just swung the bat, turned around and all of a sudden, I don't know somebody yelled, but in that case, he probably should have been at second base if he hadn't seen where the ball was actually hit. Uh, but instead he got to first and, you know, that's as far as he got, but, you know, there's some things that are happening that we don't get to see. We rely on the, the coverage from really the television crew back in St. Petersburg at, uh, at Tropicana Field. So, you know, that's what we see. That's what everybody sees. And, and we're kind of on the radio side of it, calling it off that TV. Uh, they're in the studio doing the same thing.
1: Well, you know, what's funny about that place, very easy to lose the ball. When you got <laughs> Kier, when you got Kiermaier losing a ball, he's been playing there for 6 years. He's a multi Rawlings Gold Glove winner. Yeah. I, it, I mean that's a that's a tough place, tough place to see, but yeah, um th- that that could have been a you never know what that inning could have been like if he ends up on second base.
7: Well, exactly. And, and you know, too uh, speaking of that, when Morton hit the sack fly to left field, and Rosarina was camped on it, momentum going towards the plate. And all of a sudden here coming from center field is Kiermaier. And it, it, the fact that he had to jump to catch the ball and then stop his momentum, that allowed Olsen to score. If, uh, you know, I don't know if Rose arena, I haven't seen him throw. So I don't know what kind of arm he has, but evidently Kiermaier thought it was not good enough to throw at Olsen. So he cut in front of him, reminiscent of the Joe Ferguson cutting in front of Jimmy Wynn in the 74 world series in game two, when captain Sal was thrown out at the plate, you know, throwing a, you know, but you know, Joe Ferguson had a strong arm. I mean, he threw a bullet to the plate to get Sal, and a big collision to the plate with Steve Yeager, with Sal Bando. But, uh, you know, seeing that last night, you know, that helped the A's. I thought it was going to be a determining factor in the A's being victorious. But, unfortunately, your your guest, Brett Phillips, turned it around. You know right. said, your guest.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's now front friend of the program. Uh, Matt right. Chapman is one for 24 with 12 yeah. strikeouts in the last nine games. But, Ray, today's his birthday. Some guys light it up on their birthday. How did, how did you feel going to the ballpark on your birthday?
7: Uh, more times than not, I didn't because we started later than April the 4th. So I didn't have a game unless it was exhibition. You know, we, we started later back then, Tony. We didn't start really? as early as they do these. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got married on uh, my birthday, April 4th. We didn't start the season that year to April 7th in Cleveland in 1970. So, you know, people say, oh, you, you did you miss a game to have your wedding? And I said, no, I, we didn't play. We weren't playing. So um, I, I don't really remember. I'm sure there was times that we started early. But, you know, again, back then, because we played doubleheaders, Tony. that I think was the biggest thing. We played a lot of doubleheaders. And so – uh, you, you combine an off day, but you're able to start the season later because of those doubleheaders. Unlike today, nobody plays a scheduled doubleheader because it's, it's going to be you want the gate under normal circumstances. You want the full gate instead of having a two-for-one, put it that way. But yeah, I, I hope Matt Chapman on his birthday has a good game. I don't know what he's done previously, but um, he needs to turn it around because it's, it's approaching the end of April, We're going to start a new month, uh, what, Saturday? And, you know, you, you can talk about making adjustments and coming off hip surgery and all those kind of things. I do, I do know one thing, Tony. When I had that little collision at home plate in 1970 All Star game, um, you know, I played with the fractured and separated left shoulder. I had to change everything. And I do know for a fact that when you have something happen to your body and you make adjustments because of an injury, in the case of Matt Chapman had surgery, and he was playing at the time with a bad hip. So, you know, he picked up some bad habits, and those things carry over. And, and even though you might have the corrected surgery or you get well, whatever it might be, you're still – you still have developed bad habits. And, and I would look at pictures of myself prior to that All-Star game in the first half of 1970, and I'd say, man, how did I do that? You know, what was I doing? We didn't have the video like they do now. But, you know, I just never got the swing back because I had to make some bad and serious adjustments with a fraction of left uh, and and separated left shoulder that I couldn't use my left arm. So I compensated for by using the right arm. And so as I started to get better, healthy wise then all of a sudden those those habits that had been formed because of an injury carried over. And I think that's what Matt Chapman is is doing. But um, I still say, Tommy. Anytime a hitter can go opposite field, that means he's staying back, and that means he's not jumping at the ball. And I think that's just something that that some of these pitchers uh, last now tonight, you know, throws hard, good, hard breaking ball. You know, maybe just because he throws so hard, maybe that will be a way for Matt Chapman to go to 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 right field. But, you know, he needs to come out of uh, a little bit of a funk, and, you know, he's going to. and, And maybe when somebody else gets a little bit cold, uh, that Chappie will start swinging the bat like like we know he can, and, and, and everything will, will take care of itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if he can get going the way a lot of the other guys ha- have been swinging it at the top of the lineup, that would really help. When you prepare for a tall guy where you know he's going to be boring down on you, he's got the fastball, as you mentioned, that big curveball, what's it like preparing for a guy like that?
7: Just happy that Bob Gibson had a one point one two and then lowered the mound. Otherwise you take somebody that tall with a higher mound. Oh man, that's so hard because you're right, he's throwing straight down. And it's it's kind of automatic to keep the ball down the way he does. I mean, especially with his height. It, it, because he is throwing downhill in a sense and, and keeping the ball down. But, you know, I think he's added a slider also. I just read that recently, which that makes it even worse, you know, from the hitter standpoint, because now you know, he's got the good fastball, the good curveball. And now if he adds another hard slider, which, you know, you have to look fastballed and here comes the slider. and uh, Just like um, I see last night, closing out the game for the Rays. It, you know, you look for his fastball, he throws a slider. What are you going to do? You, you can't hold up because it looks so inviting. So, um, you know, now is good. But, you know, I've always said when you're facing someone as good as now, if Cole Irvin has his good game and he keeps the Rays hitters down, then it becomes a bullpen game. And I think that's where the A's can benefit, especially in a close game or a lead, because they'll go to the back end of the bullpen, which uh, is what they did. They, I guess you could tell them the, the good guys, if you will, and what they did on Monday night and, and pick up the win. So that I think is important because pitchers, each other hitting wise, but they face the other team. And you have to know that the pitcher that's on the other team. He's not going to give your club a lot of opportunities to score runs. So you, as a pitcher, in this case Cole Irvin, has to keep the Rays hitters down. And um, I, heard, um, I heard Dwayne Sad say in a, in a highlight last night that the Rays were 0-26 with runners in scoring position before Joey Window got what turned out to be probably the biggest hit, the biggest RBI in the game because that gave him a 4-2 lead.
1: It's actually they were one for they were o for twenty eight that made them one for twenty nine for a batting average And their last 29, 29 at bats with runners in scoring position 0.034. wow <laughs>
7: that's not good that's not good so, <laughs> so so get them tonight and tomorrow and get the heck out of town and let them, let them you know because they'll be here in a week and, uh, you know, be finished with them. But I I think maybe that's good because they are a good team and they're going to get better. And and I I think the old saying about it's not who you play, it's when you play them. And right now the Rays' offense is not the way it's going to be. And uh, maybe after the A's play them at the Coliseum, they'll pick up and and the A's don't have to worry about them again until possibly October.
1: This is a cool note on Cole Irvin. So he's got back-to-back victories against the Orioles and the Tigers. And his first win since winning consecutive starts back in May of 2019. So, all of a sudden, you know, he's winning some games, right? I mean, he's he's, he's been very good the last two starts.
7: You know, when he pitched against the Tigers, Tony, Anytime a pitcher has nine days in between starts, and I don't care what type of pitcher you are, I, I think that maybe somebody that throws 95-98 is a little bit more difficult. Somebody has mechanics, you know, maybe Chris Batson because of the arms and legs and things like that. But what Cole Irvin did in that start against the Tigers was exceptional because, you know, he, he comes into the game, he has the nine days off, and, you know, you have a tendency to feel real strong because of the time off. But I go back to what Scott Emerson said at the beginning about Cole Irvin. He's a strike-throwing machine. And if you throw strikes and you have a good feel of the baseball, the fastball and the change-up, the release point then you can be an outstanding pitcher. And and the only thing that could hurt Cole Irvin tonight is if he gets the ground balls because of that turf, the ball can shoot through the infield. Let's hope that doesn't happen because, unfortunately, uh, a great infielder's range is is minimalized a little bit just because of the turf and the way the ball goes through the infield. But you've noticed also, County, that Bob Melvin has made it a point of giving somebody in the, in the lineup every day a day off. And tonight it's Elvis Andrews and Chapman's back, is playing second base, Lowry gets the day off, night off, so there's a lot of that because of the hard surface, and it's hard on your body, so I think what Bob Melman wants to do is try to get through the four-game series, make sure he does not put somebody out on that turf for four games, and, you know, Sean Murphy is off tonight, he's on dirt, but still, when he backs up first base, he has to run on the turf, and I'm sure that's more of a, uh day game after night game so murph will be in tomorrow if he played tonight probably the matchups uh, uh, go go with um uh, garcia tonight and and probably i mean after especially after murphy crushed that ball last night the way he's swinging the bat you kind of want him in there all the time but typically a day game after night game one or the other uh, the catcher's not going to be in there in the case of sean murphy so i think they still have to pay attention to his body to make sure that uh, he doesn't break down for some reason or another. Uh, Let's hope he's had his surgeries and his injuries to uh, take care of him for the rest of his career. We hope is with the athletics because he's an outstanding player, but you know, Bob Melvin's the best and he's been frustrated for two games. Let's hope tonight we're going to, we don't know if he'll see the smile, but we see the twinkle in his eye. We know he's happy and that's because he's getting the, the the four guys in blue doing what they should be doing. And uh, he doesn't have to get ejected because of a bad call.
1: All right, Ray. I'm predicting the bottom of the lineup will be the heroes tonight. Tony Kemp batting one ninety, VML Machine <laughs> batting .091, and Erasmus Garcia batting one thirty-three. I'm predicting these guys, seven, eight, and nine, will lead the athletics to victory. Your thoughts?
7: You know, I kind of yeah, I like that because I think back to the great Hall of Famer Randy Johnson when he's pitching for Seattle and you know, all the, the big guys the A's had, and, and not that Lance Blankenship or Mike Gallego were, were good players, but it was the, the, not the, the so-called big-name offensive guys. Uh, those guys, maybe he handled, and, and maybe now would take a little bit easy on the bottom three, and they'll have the success that you anticipate or you predict because, you know, we've always talked about if the bottom part of the batting order can do their job and get on, the, get on base, set the tables, turn it over to the top of the batting order – from a pitcher standpoint, you want to get those guys out. But if you don't, if you don't, then you're facing the top of the batting order, the middle part of the batting order, and then you're you're in trouble. And the ace pitchers have experienced that. Let's hope now tonight can do. And I'll look forward to uh, having your prediction come true because that would that would be a thing of beauty.
1: Oh my God, Ray! I'm seeing. I didn't realize there was this Twitter account where they 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 grade the umpires. That's right. Oh wow. Did you see that? Cody sent that to me. Cody sent that to me. Hey, Cody, by the way, I I since he brought up Randy Johnson, I know I just texted you. Can you find Bob Melvin versus Randy Johnson? Because when we talk <laughs> about how Ray owned Nolan Ryan with a 333 batting average. I want to know what <laughs> Bob Melvin did against the Hall of Famer Randy Johnson, but man, <laughs> he missed some he missed some calls that were way I mean, he's calling strikes that are way out of the strike zone.
7: Isn't that amazing? They, uh, yeah, it, it was it was really amazing that uh, they came up with that. I've never seen – you're looking at the umpire scorecards? Is that what you're looking at?
1: It's the – uh, says the umpire? Yeah, umpire scorecards.
7: And it shows the overall accuracy and the overall consistency. And he was about 9, 11 points behind on the overall consistency. And uh, 11 points behind on the overall accuracy. Missed calls, you know, worst missed calls. I mean, you talk about breaking it down. I mean, he called 92 of 111 uh, taking pitches correctly. That's bad. 92 of 111? I mean, that's, that's 19 bad calls just with that. And then the worst missed calls, we, we saw that. But, yeah, I've never seen anything like this show up. So, uh, whoever had this? Overall favor zero point (laughs) sixty one. Well, like I said, he and Vince Catronio brought up a good point that when when Frankie Montas, um, you know, kind of looked in and, and questioned the call, that maybe that good pitcher strike zone got very tight because there was some pitches late in the game, especially for Frankie, and that's obviously who we we pay more attention to, but. You know, those same pitches that were called strikes earlier were not called strikes later. And, of course, that ended up hurting Frankie, and especially on the Brett Phillips' home run.
1: Uh, what are the numbers, Commander?
2: Uh, so, Ray, Bob Melvin versus Randy Johnson, 31 career at-bats, 14 hits, one double, six strikeouts, a four fifty-two batting average. Bob Melvin versus Nolan Ryan, a two eleven batting average. Ray Fossey versus Nolan Ryan. A three thirty-three batting average. We call that own it on this program.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, sometimes you just, <laughs> just own somebody.
7: <laughs> well, you know, I still say, and you probably heard me talk about a left-hander pitching inside of right-handers. I, I still go back to David Valley when he caught Randy Johnson, and he kind of forced Randy to pitch inside of the righties. And with the hard fastball and the hard slider, they had no chance because he was so good in there, he just blew him away. Because I still think somebody throws that hard, tries to nail the outside corner, you don't finish with the pitch, and it ends up going off the plate. But whenever he did finish and going inside, and it was all because of David Valley, who convinced him to do that, and he's in the Hall of Fame. I don't know how much credit he'll give Dave Valley or his head's given Dave Valley, but but I remember watching that um, when when Randy was pitching for the the Mariners when David was catching, and uh, a very good catcher, David Valley was. And, you know, I, I remember that distinctly because Randy, you know, he couldn't throw a strike. And then all of a sudden, the big guy started finishing and huh, rush his history. You know, he he, he he just did a tremendous job. So, so I that's, used- that's good. That's good about Melvin, though. That's good. With yeah. Randy Johnson.
1: So I used to do the TV show with Jack Del Rio when he was the head coach of the Raiders, and yeah. Jack Del Rio caught Randy Johnson at USC when they were in college together, and. I was talking to him off air one time. He was like Randy. He goes, "No one knew it was gone. No one. It was so yeah. scary. Can you imagine facing a guy in college who's throwing that hard and he's that big, and you got no idea where it's going? Ray, we got to get out of here. I'm going to talk to you in uh,
7: a few minutes. I know. I know that. I was waiting for you to say that because yeah, you're, you're a busy man, Cody. Thank you, buddy. You're a good man too. So I know you're, you're continuing to get all these great guests. I'm just. I'm just privileged to be on with the stars of the program Chris Townsend and Cody live thank you guys
1: thanks, thanks Ray thanks Ray okay buddy Roxy how are you Uncle Tony I'm back after a week hiatus I'm I, I'm <laughs> I, I'm excited tomorrow is your first uh,
0: national broadcast Saturday game of the week well outside yeah, outside of opening day so I was so stoked. And then we learned that Corbin Burns is ending up on the injured list or something's going on in Milwaukee. So instead, it'll it'll be Woodruff against Dustin May tomorrow from Miller Park. And I'll be calling that from the peninsula.
1: You know, whenever I hear a guy being out, the first thing I do is cross my fingers. And I hope it's not going
0: to be, you know, the COVID list. Right. And... It's, it, I was really excited for, COVID, for Corbin Burns because with how well he had pitched to start the year, uh, it's just ridiculous. The numbers. I mean, he was putting up video game numbers, Chris, how well he was pitching. And the movement on his pitches, uh, he's got, I don't know, have you seen the pitching ninja and he breaks down one of Corbin Burns' sinkers? You, you it's mean, insane. You, you mean friend of the program, Rod Freeman, the pitching ninja? Yes. He has a breakdown of a sinker. The movement on the pitch from Burns is insane. Insane. And the, uh, look what he did so far in the month of April, right? A 153 ERA. No walks. Opponents are hitting just 152 against him. His K rate is over 45%. And just steamrolling along. And then he goes on the. Injured list without an injury designation. So you're wondering, okay, what the heck is going on?
1: So, uh, this series is going to be in Milwaukee. I've been to green Bay, but I haven't been to Milwaukee, but a lot of people say
0: it's a sneaky, good town. I, I like Milwaukee. I, I like to, uh, gosh, I was there a couple of years ago. I think the last time I had a labor day game, I want to say I had the Dodgers, oddly enough. um, and the no, it was the Astros. I want to say in the Brewers. It might have been, yeah, because it was the day after Verlander threw his no hitter in Toronto, and I interviewed Justin pregame the next day. Um, I like Miller Park. I mean, I had. I'm not a big fan of the retractable roof stadiums, to be honest with you. I mean, Houston, I get it, we need it. Miami, you need it. Uh, Seattle. Yeah, I mean, well, Seattle's is kind of because it's even though it, the roof moves above the field. There's still some open space. So uh, uh, what is it, T-Mobile Park now? Sorry, not Safeco anymore. It's a little bit different. You need it in Phoenix because it just gets so dang hot in the summer. But uh, Miller Park was done pretty well, to be honest with you. And they have the, you know, they can do what Safeco, there I go again. Seattle does in terms of they can open those panels out in the outfield. You can have the roof overhead, but you can leave the space out there. Miller Park is, is a very well-done ballpark, good, good work ballpark for us. Uh, they got the bratwurst there in the press box, Oh, nice, nice soft serve so. oh, 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 oh. as well. Yeah, I, I, do, I do like working in Miller Park.
1: How, how many brats can you put down in a three-game series? Oh, well, then
0: are you eating the pregame meal on top of going with the brats in the middle innings?
1: Oh, I might not go pregame
0: meal. I might just be brats. Oh, then and they got a few different sausages usually in the dining room to choose from, not just the brats, but of course you're in your Wisconsin. You got to do that. But, oh, they, they take care of you there. Miller park, good ballpark, good ballpark.
1: All right. Something that uh, commander noticed when we got our MLB network notes today on the, okay. on the front page, it says final day of April has arrived. What a first month of the season it has been. And it, just list things like Padres one four seven from the Dodgers, Jacob Degrom, Shane Bieber with all the strikeouts, Joe Musgrove with the no hitter, Shohei Otani is wowing everybody with his power and his velocity. Um, A's won thirteen in a row. It's like no one even knows the A's won thirteen in a row nationally.
0: Hey, are you surprised? I mean, is this is this earth shattering news to you? I, I, I've been
1: going off on it lately. I'm like. Why did how do we not pay and I and I bring it back to football, Roxy. Okay. Fo- football understands how to promote its teams, right? And a great example is you, you look at Kansas City. The Royal the Royals are look at as small market. Chiefs aren't. Pirates are small market. Steelers aren't. Uh Marlins are small market. Dolphins aren't small. I mean, it's amazing to me how you got all these baseball teams that just the, the, the sport hasn't figured out how to
0: showcase the entire league. Was the MLB, were they pointing to Corbin Burns also and what he did for April? I'm just curious.
1: No, he wasn't on there.
0: So, again, here's a neglected story, right? The A's 13 in a row in the streak after the 0-6 start and are now, what, 16-10 and 10 going into the game tonight against the O's. Of course, it just goes by the wayside. It's uh, For whatever reason... We just get slided out here, and I I, I don't have an answer for it. Um, I know people are paying attention to it. The baseball people are, but you, you look at that, and then just you know, to, to, is it because Burns lost a couple games in April? That's why they don't talk about him. Corbin Burns, the St. Mary's Gale, by the way, twenty nine and a third innings, forty nine strikeouts, and no walks. Are you kidding me?
1: Yeah, the no. Think about that. You know, I don't think I'm impressed anymore by
0: strikeouts, but I'm impressed by no walks. No walks, 49 punchouts, allowing 16 hits in 29 and a third innings. He's got a whip, Chris, of .55. Wow. He's, he's averaging 15 strikeouts per nine innings. Think about that. And then, <laughs> so the A's aren't getting talked about. Corbin Burns isn't getting the love. And I just I don't get it. I really don't. Wait, Cody, get get on here. What do you
1: want me to ask him?
2: Roxy, I was gonna wait for this till the end, but I figured you know with the NFL draft and you being a, you know calling a lot of college football games, how many trade lance games have you have you called in your career? Roxy, uh, gra- a,
0: a grand total of zero.
1: Yeah, Ro- Roxy's big time. He's not going to North
0: Dakota State. <laughs> I, I we're not dropping down to the FCS there, <laughs> Commander Cody.
2: <laughs> You're telling me that nothing sounds better than North Dakota State. North Dakota State football from the peninsula? I mean, that's, that sounds like uh, a ringing endorsement right there.
0: Well, it, uh, the, the commute is good if I'm doing it from the peninsula,
2: yeah. I, uh, I, can't even get, I
1: can't even get him to do a San Jose State game. You think he's going to do North Dakota State?
0: Hey, I was in the building for two San Jose State games last year. Just saying, Uncle Town, I didn't see you there. We're We're
1: a, foot- we're, we're a football power.
0: You are a football power now.
1: Cannot wait for this. I got my season tickets back. I'm ready to rock.
0: Oh, and your, and your football coach it just sent me some swag, by the way. It's supposed to get here any day. Just rubbing it into you. Nice,
1: nice. Yeah. Um, when you look at what the A's have been able to do, Roxy, from a standpoint of being 0-6, getting off the deck, you know, I thought that series this over the weekend was like a playoff series. You got two teams – well-managed, they both got talent, their bullpens. I mean, I was looking at the The A's bullpen has a 1.80 ERA over the last 15 games. Starters have been fantastic. I mean, what did you think about the series over the weekend against the Rays?
0: That was good baseball. It it just was, right? And, you know, Tampa Bay came into the series, and you're going, okay, they're hovering right around five hundred. What's going on with the Rays? And after the you know the win, win streak ended on Sunday in Baltimore, but they were 500, and then you they run their your, our old buddy Rich Hill out there in Game One, but then some of the arms we saw Michael Walker has had success in St. Louis. Certainly Glass now is among the elite pitchers in the game when you look at what he's got and the command that he's pitching with right now, and the velocity and the movement. And then how about McClanahan yesterday oh. in his first regular season outing? We, we'd seen him briefly in the postseason, but his stuff was insane yesterday. And I mean, the movement on some of his pitches, like on his four seam, it was – he was doing stuff with the baseball like, like baseball's not supposed to do, right? And at the velocity, when what did he, what did he hit, 101 yesterday? Uh, oh, my goodness. I mean, this – he – if he can harness that and command it, the second time through, the A started kind of getting to him a little bit. But when he figures it out, my goodness, the, the potential that he has, he's filthy, Chris. I mean, McClanahan can bring it. And with the movement on his fastball, it – wow. I was, I was impressed to see him pitch yesterday.
1: That slider that he could pinpoint, and it was so 92? tight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in on right-handers – you know, I always joke around when I play golf and I hit a good shot, I always go, you can't teach that. What, what, what he was doing yesterday with the velocity and that slider into right-handers, that's not something you can teach. That's just that—that's no. that, God-given ability. It's unreal.
0: And, and it is. And, look, there's a reason why they took him in the first round, and the A's got to see it yesterday. I'm just amazed. Now, granted, we had an abbreviated season last year. But it took him this long to make his regular season debut. I mean, I know he's only 24, but it's like, where where have they been hiding this dude, right? (laughs) And it just seems like they're able to develop one pitcher after the next. Now, granted, they've made some trades to acquire some guys. Um, Unfortunately, Commander Cody had to see the Pirates involved with some of their former players. Uh, Moving on to the Tampa organization, but it is... Eh, impressive to watch to see the the arms and the wealth of arms that that Tampa Bay has had over the years and the way they've been able to develop them. Okay, David Price goes. Okay, they get rid of Archer. Okay, big deal. Blake Snell goes. They just got more guys coming, and it's a credit to their their scouting department and the way they're able to develop these pitchers. Also,
1: now I know it's been a long time since they were in the World Series. Uh, n- not last year, but the time before when they lost to the Phillies. But you, th- you just think about all those guys that they had, like Carl Crawford, and they had Longoria, and they had all that. It's just, uh, they've lost so much talent. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very similar to what we see here in Oakland. I mean, the ability just to understand that no one's going to be here for their entire career until something changes there. And I, I can't. Uh, we talked to a couple of their broadcasters. I can't believe, Roxy, they're, they're really still thinking about, instead of making it happen in Tampa over the bridge, they're really thinking about playing in St. Petersburg and Montreal, which is just crazy.
0: It's stupid. You, you can't do that. And I don't know if the players' union would stand for that, right? I mean, we know how powerful and strong the players' union is. But to divide home games, look, after I left Miami, remember the Marlins tried to do that? No. And play some games in Puerto Rico. It, you, you just can't do that. And there, there's just no stability for the organization. And the guys are always going to feel like they're on the road. And they, they won't feel comfortable in, in their surroundings. So I, I know it's being tossed around. You can't. I don't think you can do that. It's not practical to do that. Look, at some point, I hope Montreal gets back into Major League Baseball. And that could be a great baseball town again and look some of the teams the expos had were just dynamic to watch and you know the strike back in the in 94 i think really killed that organization because that's when they were set to have the best team in baseball and probably now granted it's a crap shoot but very good chance they were going to win the world series that year and then it all was halted and i don't think montreal recovered as a football t- or a baseball town rather From that point forward and it was 2005 when the Expos leave and move to D.C. and become the Nationals but it just it doesn't make sense to me why a team would even entertain doing that and dividing homes between two two cities that are that far apart. Look if they were to play some home games in Orlando that's a little different but you're talking about Tampa and and Montreal just complete opposite ends of the spectrum.
1: Our mutual friend FP Santangelo, former A,
0: yeah, used
1: to play for the Montreal Expos, and said it was it was the best town in baseball. Like Montreal, I've never been there, but I guess Montreal is beautiful, vibrant. It's like one of the best places to play.
0: I've been there for hockey, and which of course hockey is a religion there, and you go to a Canadiens game, and it's just unbelievable. Uh, so I get what he's saying. And I could see it. Look, when I when I worked in Miami, my partner was Dave Van Horn, the Hall of Famer, who was the first ever voice in the history of the Expos and stayed in Montreal until the early 2000s when he moved down to Miami and went to the Marlins when he saw the handwriting on the wall. Dave was smart to make that move, and he's still working for the Marlins today, but he talks glowingly about his experiences and, and time. In montreal and and just it wasn't just the city of montreal yes the blue jays came in later but the whole country of canada got behind the expos and the blue jays especially when the teams were good and we're headed to the postseason and i would love to see montreal come back again and maybe they get they get an expansion team and, and we'll see how this plays out over the next few years but I think they made a statement when they've had some exhibition games there in recent years and some of the big crowds they've drawn to Olympic Stadium.
1: All right, let's end on this. Coming up next is Ben McDonald. And when we were in high school, he was a big deal. I mean, I remember watching him in the College World Series. He won Olympic gold. He was the number one overall pick. I think guys like him and Will Clark were these, like, 80s college baseball stars because of ESPN and the
0: College World Series. How about that Mississippi State team that, that Will Clark was on? Yeah, It was him, Rafael Palmero, Jeff Brantley, and Bobby Figpen all on the same team. And Isn't that crazy? And didn't win it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You, you didn't even ask me about the world record I saw last week. Last Friday what? when I was in Tucson. What? What was the What? what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Gronk set a world record when we were in Tucson last night around the Arizona spring football game. So, so on Friday afternoon, Gronk is out there with the team and they were attempting to catch a football from the highest altitude it's ever been dropped. So a helicopter flew above the football stadium in Tucson, Arizona stadium and hovered over midfield, uh, at 600 feet high. So, they had somebody in the chopper with some footballs, dropped the football, and Gronk set a world record by catching a football from the highest altitude at 600 feet. He caught a football that was dropped out of a helicopter. Day or nighttime? Day. It was late in the day. It was right around this time, actually, last Friday. And, and there, if you go to social media and Twitter and you go check it out, the, the team was watching all the, the current team at the university of Arizona with their new coaching staff. They made a big splash for their spring game. They brought Teddy Bruski back. Um, it was just a whole big party. It was essentially Gronk's party uh, and then we were all invited to it, but from 600 feet above now, he didn't catch it on the first try. And, but on the third try, he got closer and closer. Then he caught it from 600 feet. The, heli- the helicopter dropping the football and Gronk caught it at midfield.
1: You know, that's no joke, because by the time the ball's coming down, you want to talk about breaking your fingers, your hand. Uh, yeah. If you take it in the face, it break your face. I can't even imagine what the velocity is of a football
0: being dropped from that eye. And I think Gronk tweeted out something and, and Br- told to Tom Brady that I found a new quarterback. This guy can throw it 600 feet. I don't know. If, I don't know if you can. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Roxy, have a great call tomorrow, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Hi, right, Chris. Ben, it is great to catch up with you. How is life treating you?
8: Uh, I can't complain. It's you know it's baseball season. The fans are back in the stands. So, uh, you know, not full capacity yet, but we're moving in that direction. But it's just, just great to have fans back in the stands again. The college game is, is heating up. We're getting close to playoff time in the college game. Looking forward to that. And of course, love coming back and doing Oriole games as well.
1: Well, I, before we get into this series, I, I want people to know you were really one of the first with guys like Will Clark, who were college baseball stars, where we watched you on ESPN. I mean, you won an Olympic gold medal. You won the Golden Spikes Award. You played in the College World Series, the number one overall pick. But your college career was so amazing. When you look back, what was it like playing on television that much at LSU?
8: Well, you know, it was just different, you know. And and I was drafted like a lot of – you know players like Will Clark out of high school and got drafted by the Braves but really wanted to go to LSU man I wanted to have that college experience and play in front of the home folks I grew up about 20 minutes from from LSU so it was hard to get away and got to play basketball and baseball there and of course, ended up being pretty good at baseball and chose that route. But it was fun. I mean, anytime you were on TV back then, which we were on TV all the time, you know, every game in the college game now is on some type of network. You could watch it on the ESPN Plus or if it's not on one of the linear networks. So it's changed a lot like everything has. But it was a real treat for us to get out and play, you know, on ESPN and get some national exposure at the time. So it was a lot of fun.
1: And then win a gold medal. I mean, wow.
8: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, – People always ask me, how does that rank? And I always say it, 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 it is at the top. It's number one. Just because, you know, it's a, anytime you get to wear the red, white, and blue and you're you're, you're out of your own country on foreign soil and you get to compete and it says USA across your chest, man. And I was a big Olympian like a lot of people were as far as I love the Summer Olympics. I wanted to get out and I watched every time the Summer Olympics came on. And I always wondered what would it be like to stay on that platform and have somebody drape a gold medal over your neck. And I tell you what, I get goosebumps just talking about it and, got to experience that and got to do that, man. So that was, you know, another plus to going to school at the time because they weren't allowing professionals to play in the Olympics back then and as far as baseball went. So I got to have that experience as well, man. And, and it ranks right there at the top of, of some things I was lucky enough to accomplish.
1: What do you do with the gold medal?
8: You know, I have it at my house. It's matted. It's, it it's with the uniform that I wore and it's matted. It's just like, just hanging up at my house, man. And so, uh, you know, with the golden spikes and some other things and, uh, just in my office and, Try to keep the dust off of it from time to time, and it's fun to look back on it every now and then and, and, and have those memories that were a long time ago.
1: Yeah, no, they're definitely great memories. And, of course, you know, out here in Oakland, we got this series starting up between the Athletics and the Orioles, and, you know, the one guy that uh, was able to get to the A's was John Means. I mean, at the start of his year at 2-0 and with a 1.50 ERA. What stuff he has. Just talk to us about this left-hander.
8: Well, I mean, if you go back to last year, John Means got a new toy during COVID time, and that toy was velocity. And it was two or three miles per hour extra velocity. And that toy got him in trouble last year. His first five starts coming out of COVID weren't very good. He got hit all around the field because he changed what he did best. And what he did best back in 2019 was he made the All Star team because of who he was. And Brandon Hyde, the skipper for the Orioles, called him in about the midway point of the season last year and said, Johnny, you got to get back to doing the things that you used to do. You're not a power pitcher. You don't blow balls away by people. you got to get back to pitching. When well, he did that in the last five starts last year, he was really good. And then he pitched to like a two ERA. Well, that's carried over this year. And he's back throwing with not quite as much velocity, but the command is better. He took a little bit off the fastball. He really commands his fastball. And as you guys know, look, He can throw the fastball in and out, but the changeup is a difference maker for John Means. Like, he can land that changeup just about in any count, in any situation. And he's throwing a few more curveballs this year. His curveball has come around, and that was kind of the next step for him. He's always been fastball changeup heavy, but he's also mixing in a curveball this year, and it's been really good. So, what can you say about John Means? So far this year in 2021, he has been as good as anybody.
1: Well, yeah, and when you got that changeup working, it just makes your fastball that much faster to
8: a hitter. That's right. And you know he's got a great difference in between the two. So you always want around a 10 mile per hour difference. And if you watch him not, he'll pitch, you know, he'll show you some fours and fives with his fastball, but he'll sit about 93. But that changeup is about 83 miles an hour. So it's the perfect distance. And so we talk about, you know, tunneling now. It, it comes out of the same window. It looks the same as the fastball. But as it travels at 60 feet, six inches, it goes down and away from the right handers. Uh, and it's a really special pitch for him.
1: You know, and when, when I think about, you know, the past four games, just how big is it for this group and this core to not get hammered by the Yankees game after game after game, and actually split a series with them?
8: Well, it's huge. I mean, you're talking about you know one of the youngest position player groups in baseball, and to go out and have some success against the Yankees and and split the series was big because the Yankees have hammered on the Orioles. You go back to 2020, 2000. 19, the the Yankees had a, a giant advantage against the Orioles, and so this this young team is starting to grow up a little bit. It's still got a long way to go. It's very erratic at the plate, as you know. Uh, Trey Mancini's starting to come around, but anytime they can get some confidence as a young bunch against a team that's built for October, you know the Yankees are built for a playoff run. They're built for October baseball. When you can come in and split a series against them, it gives you a little bit of confidence. But they'll certainly have their hands full with you guys tonight. I know Oakland's playing well. Bob Melvin one of my favorite people. He was my first catcher in the big leagues. I thought about him today. Bob Melvin taught me when I was 21 years old and I got called to the big leagues. I never wore a tie in my life. We had to wear a tie, and I thought about him today because I was tying my tie, and it's still the only tie that I know how to tie. Like, it's the only way I can tie a tie is what he showed me back in 1989. And he saw me struggling, sitting in the corner. He said, you don't know how to tie a tie, to you? I said, Mr. Melvin, I've never put a tie on in my life. He said, come here, kid. And he showed me how to put a tie on, and he told me how to tie, and I, I still use the same tie knot every time I put a tile on it to this day.
1: Well, I will be taping the Bob Melvin show tomorrow. We have him on every single week. I can't wait to ask Bob and uh, get an answer to that
8: story. You tell you ask him about it. He'll remember it. it. was 1989, and I could not tie a tie. I had no idea how to do so, and he showed me how to do it. And you'll get a kick out of him because I'm sure tie knots have changed a lot in the last 30 years, but <laughs> mine hasn't. It's the same. It's the same tie knot today as it was back in 1989.
1: Oh, that is that that is so classic. I can't wait to ask him about that about that. You know, two years ago when we were because uh, we. We normally do this show on the field during batting practice, and Trey Mancini came over, and he, he's a great guy, and, you know, coming back from cancer and beating cancer. Just talk about what an inspiration he is.
8: Well, look, you know, if you can't get inspiration from that, you know, it, it, you know, to see a guy in spring training last year that was playing well, then all of a sudden we, you know, I was in camp just helping out a little bit, and all of a sudden Trey was gone. He disappeared. Nobody knew why, and then uh, the news finally came, and it was just heart-wrenching. You know, because it was stage three, and that's as we know, is not a good thing, right? But Trey went home, and, you know, he did his thing, and and, and he went through the treatments, and we stayed, everybody stayed in touch with Trey along the way. If you know anything about Trey Mancini, he is the fiercest competitor as there is, and there was no doubt if it was in God's hands Trey Mancini was going to be back on the baseball field. Well, he's been back, you know, and he put a lot of pressure on himself early, He wanted to do well and you can understand why when you go through something like that I think the first thought is can I live am I going to make it the second thought is will I ever get to play baseball again and if I do will I ever be the player that I was several years ago, you know when he hit 35 homers and drove in nearly 100 runs so all those things went through his head he got off to a rough start putting pressure on himself, but. You know, Don Long, the hitting coach, is counting down. They've had some talks with him. And, look, he's been really good. You go back to his last seven games, I think he's hitting 385 with a couple of homers and five RBIs. So, he's starting to heat up a little bit. He's just a great story, and he's a great guy, too.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And, and, you know, when he got that standing ovation, you know, it it brings tears to your eyes because you know what he's gone through just to get back, and uh, what a special guy. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, all right, let's get into May. But I got got to think Cedric Mullins doesn't want to leave April.
8: (laughs) You're right about that. I tell you what, who saw this coming, right? I mean, a young man that uh, hadn't batted just pure lefty since his senior year in high school. He's been a switch hitter in college and all through pro ball. And he finally knows. Come to find out, he had thoughts about doing it two years ago, and the old regime didn't want him to do it. And finally, this past offseason, he said, listen, I'm going to do it. I'm not having much success switch hitting, and my right side is not very good. And I'm going to do it. Brandon Hyde gave him all his bats, as many as he could, against left-handed pitchers in spring training. And nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that he would have the success he's had lefty on lefty. I think he's batting over 400. But, look, he's a hard worker, and he put a ton of work in. And he's a great story. I mean, you go back two years ago, he was given the job in center field, opening day center fielder for the Baltimore Orioles, and just stunk it up. And not only did he get sent to AAA, he went all the way down to AA and got his stroke back, and he came back last year. Same results early, got sent down again, and he came back again. So there's no scar tissue with this kid. Like, he just forgets it, he moves on, he gets better, and he's gotten better. And you talk about exciting to watch. He's been the spark plug at the top of this lineup for the Orioles, and he's a lot of fun to watch. If there was an all-star selection today, I'm pretty sure he'd be an all-star right now.
1: Looking back in your career, how did you like pitching in Oakland?
8: I liked it. I always liked pitching in Oakland. I always thought it was a fair ballpark, uh, especially compared to Camden Yards where the ball just absolutely jumps out. I love the foul ground, right? Extra foul ground. And so I always felt like that, uh I had a pretty good shot there. You know, now those days in the early 90s, you know, when you had uh, going up against Conseco and McGuire and uh, all the boys and Gallego and Corny Lansford and, Steinbach and, and others, it wasn't a, a, a fun lineup to pitch to, I'm going to be honest with you, but it, it was a good fair ballpark to pitch. In. So I always loved coming out to the West Coast. I always thought the weather was great. Anaheim was great, the weather. And the King Dome, I, I could have done without the King, the King Dome. I, I thought that was a pretty place. But uh, other than that, I love being out in Oakland and uh, over in Anaheim.
1: How about that story that came out in The Athletic that talked about Cal Ripken calling your pitches from shortstop? how
8: true was that story? It's 100% true. And I think it was my first year in 1990 in the big leagues. And Chris Hoyles was a young catcher. He was just a couple of years older than me. And he had just gotten called up. And you got to remember, I never called one of my pitches in college. My head coach, Skip Burtman, called every pitch I ever threw. And that's a fault of mine for not trying to think along with him. But all of a sudden, I'd get out of college in 89. I'm in the big leagues in 89 trying to call my own game. And I had not a clue. And we were in there after a game in 1990, and, and Ripken walked in the room. Me and Hoyles were just trying to bumping our heads together, just trying to figure some stuff out after a ball game. And he, he walked in, he said, you guys don't, don't really have a clue of what you're doing. And I looked up <laughs> at him and I said, no, Mr. Ripken, I do not have a clue at all of what I'm doing. He said, well, I can tell. And he said, well, here's the deal. I'll be glad to help you guys out, but it's going to stay in our triangle right here. It's only me, you, and Chris Hoyles is going to know about this. This is the only way I'm going to do it. And I said, yes, sir. And so, sure enough, I'm looking at home plate, and I'm looking to get the sign from Chris Hoyles, and I'm looking at his eyes, and his eyes are going over my right shoulder because he's waiting for Cal Ripkin to hold his glove a certain way and maybe touch something on his chest to say what pitch it's going to be and what location, and all of a sudden the right finger in the location would go down. This went on for about 25 starts. And after every game, me and Chris and Cal would sit down with a couple of adult beverages, and we would talk about – the game and why he wanted to pitch this guy in this situation. And that was my learning curve. That's how I learned to pitch the big league hitters. And Cal always made a big point to me. He said, listen, you're not going to pitch Paul Molitor the same way with two out and nobody on that you're going to pitch Paul Molitor with two out and runners on second and third. want going to pitch him a totally different way. And I never really touched base with me until I started to figure out, you're right, if you pitch a big league hitter the same way every time, he's going to make some adjustments. So I got to where I pitched certain guys' situations, it was a situational pitching, right? And then when it really mattered, I'd pitch him a little bit different way. And that's something I learned from Cal. And of course Rick Sutcliffe came along a couple years later and I could relate to him being six foot seven and big and like tall like me. And so that was the two guys that probably were most influential in my in my professional career for sure.
1: Now was Cal good at it?
8: He was very good at it. As you know, Cal wasn't the fastest guy. But there were so many times before we even had a shift that we see today that I'd hit a ground ball would go by me to my right side. I'd go, crap, that's the base hit. i turn around and Junior's just standing right there and he's catching it right between his legs and flipping over to first base. I always used to say, how could you be right there in that situation? He said, you just keep hitting your spots and I'm going to be in the right place. So Junior knew the hitters as well as anybody. He was a student of the game. And so he knew the tendencies of every hitter, what they liked to do and how they were swinging in certain situations and he made a big difference on shortstop uh, not only for me but for, for everyone that played uh, with him
1: let's end on this with all the analytics now for pitching and the technology with the rap soto and you know all the cameras and spin rates and everything how do you how do you think you would have been with all of this technology back if you would have had that in your career
8: wow there's a lot of info out there and to me it can cloud the mind a little bit but what i do like i do like the spin rates in other words if I, I threw a two-seam fastball and a four-seam fastball and the analytics would be able to tell me if the two-seamer wasn't any good like it is for some guys, they would they would say, let, let, let's just scrap the two-seamer, let's throw all four-seamers, you know, because we were taught the best pitch in baseball was a good four-seamer or a two-seamer down at the knees, right? That was always, that's not the case anymore. You can get some guys out up in the zone, and for a guy like me that had a, a plus fastball, it would have been interesting to see, you know, what the analytics said about the spin rate to my fastball, my two-seamer, I think, you know, It's old school to new school. It's new school that we have more information, but it's old school the fact that if you go tell me and you say, Ben, you can have success in X, Y, and Z, I still, from a mechanic standpoint, still got to get the ball to X, Y, and Z. And that's where the old school still comes in. Mechanics are still very important, but now we have more data to show you where you can have success. And I like that part of
0: it. Well,
1: hey, it was great catching up with you. Enjoy the series. Have a good call on television. And let's do this again soon.
8: And look forward to it. Take care of yourself. Good luck to you guys.
0: This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.